have we ever got a lot to talk about today? Much to do, much to do. It feels like a little bit of the hectic nature of the holiday season right here on the program. But we're going to do a deep dive, you and me, and I'm glad you're along for it. Thank you so much for stopping by, spending some of your time with us on the show. I know it's the most valuable thing that you have as you rack up credit card bills over the holidays. No, no, it's your time. That's what's valuable, whether it's four minutes or the entire four hours. I love you for it. Thanks for being here. And your voice is always welcome on the show. I hope you know that. 519-570-2545, star 570, and one 800 570-5715. We've got much to get to today, including... A kind of dirty little secret that's preventing us from building affordable housing, let's say, in a place like Cambridge. I'm, I'm going to get into that a little bit further. I'm frustrated by it. So I'll, I'll do my very best to keep an even keel here. But there, there's a problem that we need to call out. And I don't know what we're going to do to change it, but we'll at least identify the problem that's before us. Get to that in just a minute. Uh, last night, we had the opportunity to celebrate with my beloved's co-workers the holiday season. Had a little bit of a holiday party, which is sometimes tough on a guy like me because there just so happened to be a Leafs game on. And, you know, I'm a bit of a fan of the Leafs. And so when they're on and I'm elsewhere, I can be distracted, fortunately, the elsewhere that I was last night had a couple of large screen TVs so I could just keep an eye on the action and I got to see the greatest hockey player in the world today celebrate a couple of times. You know, the Leafs lost the game last night 5-2 to two, but the two goals that the Leafs got came from the same guy. Riley going wide. Got a man in front with a shot. Scores! Austin Matthews ties the game! Morgan Riley jumped into the rush, and he said, you know what, we got a guy on our team who's got 23 goals, maybe I'll let him shoot it. McCabe turns to get it on his forehand, to Matthews, who scores! Ninth multi-goal game of the season for Austin Matthews, and number 25 is in the books. Yeah, that's right. He had 23 to start the game last night. He's now got 25 in the 28 games he has played. Austin Matthews is on the bullet train to the Rocket Richard Trophy this year for most goals scored in the league. Nine multi-goal games already. Quite frankly, I don't even care that the Leafs lost the game overall. AM on AM in the AM times two for you this morning. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Hey, I want to thank my buddy Dan for bringing this to my attention because, frankly, I love it. Listen in on this and let me know. Like, does this sound even a little bit familiar to you? Hey, Wilmot. You have supported us so much over the years that we are taking next week to give back to you and the community with our NW Gives Back event. How does it work? Simply hire us to do a specific job done in exchange for a donation of your choice. Think, yeast shop cleaning, uh, any leftover yard work, taking things to the dump, washing your car, wrapping your gifts, even walking your dog. You name it, we will do it. All proceeds will go to the 519 Community Collective, 
please contact us at 519-684-7693 to arrange for us to come and help you. Your support is greatly appreciated. Take care. NW Roofing in Wilmot. Is it just me? Or does that sound a little bit familiar? Give us a job to do. By the way, when she started by saying next week is NW Gives Back Week, that's this week. We're into the week when NW Roofing gives back to its lovely clients in Wilmot and perhaps beyond. You pick the task, you assign the donation to the task, and that money will be contributed to the 519 Community Collective. Is it just me, or is it Farwell for Hire without the Farwell? And frankly, I'm here for it. NW Roofing would be glad to clean those eavesdrops or wrap those Christmas gifts or walk those dogs. I wouldn't. Can I walk the dogs too, though? I really like to walk dogs. Anyway, my buddy Dan pointed this out to me on Twitter the other day. And as I said, love it. Nobody has the market cornered on good ideas. So if the little Farwell for Hire idea has spread to NW Roofing and Wilmot, good. I hope they are so busy this week they can barely wrap their own gifts because you can make a donation to the 519 Community Collective and you can have the folks at NW Roofing do those tasks for you. I love it. I love it. I love it. Way to go, NW Roofing. Okay. Uh, On a more serious note, although it's very serious what NW Roofing is doing for charity, good on them and your support of it. Cambridge Council last night, you would have heard our reporter Josh Gorey on the story this morning. It's Gorey on the story of housing over parking. It's something that we've talked about on this show before. We had Councillor Scott Hamilton on the show to talk about his proposal prior to bringing the motion to Council, and it failed in a narrow 5-4 vote last night. So Councillor Hamilton... Obviously, Councillor Kimpson, Councillor Roberts, and Councillor Earnshaw voted in favor of building housing over municipal parking lots in the city of Cambridge. So the parking lot doesn't disappear. You just, you know, create some columns, pillars, supports, whatever, and build the housing above. You would lose some spots, but whatever. And then you get some affordable housing built above that parking lot, which to me, makes a whole heck of a lot of sense, right? I mean, you've got the space. You're not really losing a whole lot in the way of parking. And the inventory of parking in the city says there are plenty of spots. If you lose four or five in this lot or five or six in that lot, it's not going to make a difference in the overall, not a significant difference anyway, in the overall parking inventory. And then you use this land, which, you know, arguably is being poorly used. I mean, all it does is store cars. It can still store cars, but you put affordable housing above it. It's pretty innovative. Some other jurisdictions in the world, I know Germany is kind of a leader on this. It's very interesting stuff. Unfortunately, it got shot down at council last night. But I'm going to tell you the dirty little secret why it got shot down. First, though, I found it really interesting. Before calling the vote on the issue... Uh, Mayor Jan Liggett, I mean, I don't know, is it just me or does it sound defensive? She, She's just making her own comments on this, but take. what are we doing? What are we doing over here? Are we good over there? Okay, we don't need that. That, that. that was not Jan Liggett. That was something out of the gremlins. I don't know where that came from. But 
I don't know. You, you, you decide. Does this sound a little bit on the defensive side? I want to state right off at the beginning that how someone votes tonight, it's not indicative of whether one supports helping providers of affordable housing or not. Every member of this council does support providers of affordable housing and their roles. What we may not agree on with it is to what extent and what manner of support. I find that interesting to start your comments that way. Anybody who votes against this before Mayor Liggett voted against it, it doesn't mean they're against supporting providers of affordable housing. So clearly there was an understanding that this might be a little bit contentious. Councillor Sherry Roberts, though, said something that hints at the dirty little secret involved here. There are really only a few tools that a municipality in a two-tier system uh, can use in the challenge of increasing our affordable housing inventory. I believe that having staff investigate the possibility of building affordable housing units above city-owned parking lots is really just the first step in what I think is a creative potential option to utilize city-owned property to increase that inventory while retaining most of the public parking. Um, If this motion is supported by council, I really look forward to hearing from staff about the viability of this innovative idea and seeing what the potential next steps could be. So I, too, am very supportive of this motion. So that was one of the four supportive votes from Councillor Sherry Roberts, Councillor Scott Hamilton, who tabled the motion, Councillor Ross Earnshaw, and Councillor Corey Kimson. Those were the four who voted in favour. But what Councillor Roberts hints at when she says at the beginning of her comments... There are only so many tools that a councillor in a two-tier municipality has available to them. That is the devil in the details here. This is the dirty little secret that we need to air out and we need to understand. And I really think we need to begin doing some serious work on. You see, in our two-tier municipality the tier of local government that is responsible for building affordable housing is the region. So no matter how good this idea is in Cambridge, and I do think it is a good idea, the city of Cambridge can only do so much. Essentially, what the city of Cambridge could do is craft a motion or write a letter to the region to say, hey, we think you should explore this idea further because it's going to be the region that builds the affordable housing because that is the level of local government responsible for affordable housing. The city of Cambridge cannot, on its own, build that housing. That is a regional issue. So you kind of get stuck between a rock and a hard place here, don't you? You're a councillor in Cambridge. You want more affordable housing in your city, but you need the region to do the building right so it's messy it's it's kind of ugly it's very sticky and here's the thing we have because you've got councillors in cambridge and dare i say councillors in north dumfries wellesley wilmot woolwich waterloo and kitchener you've got councillors in all of those individual municipalities who want some affordable housing built but the region has to be the builder of that housing And so what you end up with is the situation that I'm seeing clear across this community. Everybody is responsible for something, so nobody does anything. That's what's happening here. 
And we really need to understand this. Think for a second about the really ambitious Build Now initiative that was announced back in the summer. Now, raise your hand. This was July, June, July. I think it was July. Raise your hand if you have heard of one, one announcement of the start of a Build Now project, a piece of land donated to Build Now. Just one. Have you heard it? No. You know why? Because everybody is responsible for something, so nobody does anything. This is the dirty little secret in this ridiculous two-tier municipality. It's broken. It's archaic. We need to rip it apart and do things better. And for whatever reason, we won't do that. So this is the end result. You get a really neat idea in one municipality, and the municipality itself can't do a damn thing about it. We have so many people with their fingers in the pie saying, it's my job, it's my job, it's my job, it's my job. I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. Nobody does anything. We have built a system of two-tier governance in this community that gets precisely nothing done. It's not working the way it ought. Where are the announcements on the affordable housing bills? Yes, I know. Our region has a plan for 5,000 units every year, and they're exceeding that. We, have, we can do more. We can do more if we can get out of each other's way. But we won't. Because we insist on keeping this archaic system of local government. It's a shame, and it's costing us housing. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. You know what would make Waterloo Region a better place? One tier of local government. I don't know how many times I have to say it, but don't worry. I'm determined and I'm stubborn. I'll keep saying it until we get it right around here. But currently, this archaic system of local governance is costing us opportunity in housing. It's as simple as that. There is another piece of audio I wanted to share with you this morning. And when I listened back to it this morning, I heard it live on the air yesterday uh, with Rob Snow and the Now You Know show that starts just after mine at one o'clock. And when I heard it, I I cringed a little bit. When I listened back to the audio this morning, I, I did more than cringe. This honestly upsets me. And I want to preface this by saying I I don't hold anything personal against the leader here in question, but I really wish he would stop telling outright lies. I'm sorry, because this is utterly false, what the leader of the federal conservatives said in an interview yesterday with Rob Snow. Have a listen for yourself. How do you view the traditional news media in Canada, print reporters, TV reporters, radio people like me? Are we useful idiots are we just idiots uh to be ignored are you just going to use social media what do you think of the media right now in canada mr polia well it depends if you mean the media or if you mean the bought and paid for liberal press gallery i mean you know trudeau finally the media was starting to give him cover the news about trudeau they were starting to cover the fact that he doubled housing costs that he gave us the worst inflation in 40 years uh, that uh, people were living in tents and lined up in food banks. And then he showed up in his fall update with a big pile of cash to subsidize the media even more to the tune of $30,000 per journalist. And what do you know? All of a sudden, the news turned very bright for Justin Trudeau. All this beautiful, gushing coverage. 
and CP was more than happy to print hit jobs on me, often uh, verbatim from what they uh, what they were told by liberal ministers. So I don't think it's journalism when a reporter is relying on Justin Trudeau for their paycheck. And look, I get it. Life sucks for everyone right now after eight years of Trudeau. So journalists are broke like everyone else. They need to find a way to pay their bills. Their mortgages are rocketing under Trudeau. So when he comes along and says, hey, I'll give you a check if you'll write some nice things about me, that's a very persuasive offer. And I have no idea, no doubt that it's going to have an effect. But I will warn the Canadian public so that they know that when they're getting bought and paid for government propaganda, that they know that that's what they're seeing. I did not get an offer. I mean, if I missed the lineup for the $30,000 checks, then I'm the idiot here. But of course, there was no lineup. There was no offer of, hey, I'll give you a check if you write a positive story about me. That is an outright lie. And I don't know why anybody would say that. I, except what? To, to stoke outrage? Is that what we're trying to do here? That is complete and utter poppycock. And it came directly from the lips of the leader of one of our federal political parties. It's bunk. $30,000 for every journalist. No. I mean, sure, if you want to take the entire pot of money and then divide it by the number of working journalists in this country, but there's not a single person in this radio station or anybody else that I know that got their $30,000 check. Because I can tell you exactly what I do with it. I could find a lot of uses for the $30,000 I did not get. That's a lie. It's a complete and utter fabrication. And I don't know why he'd say it, but it really upsets me. Because it's not true. And it shouldn't be stated in that manner so as to make anyone who heard that statement feel as though people like me have been bought off by some $30,000 check that simply does not exist. Be better. Do better. We've got an update coming from the City News Center, and then, oh boy, is there a kettle of fish, and a lot of the fish are swimming around Conestoga College when it comes to international student visas approved, and then those students ending up in post-secondary institutions here in Ontario. A disproportionate number of them at Conestoga College. We'll get into the numbers next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Well, if you haven't spent much time on social media in the past few days, congratulations on having a much better state of mental health than many of us who do swim in the cesspool on more than a occasional occurrence. It it was there, though, that I came across some information shared by a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo, whose work I quite enjoy, and uh, Mike Moffat, who is one of our foremost uh, housing voices in this country and who, in fact, was just on our show last week to talk about housing and the new catalog for 
wartime housing construction that we're going to start work on here in the country next year. But both Professors Moffat and Scooterud, who will join us in just a moment, have been pointing to some rather incredible numbers when it comes to the international student visas issued. And and that would start, I believe, at the top with our federal government and then where these students end up attending by way of post-secondary institution with these student visas. And there seems to be a disproportionate number of them ending up at Conestoga College right here in the beautiful region of Waterloo. The aforementioned professor of economics at the University of Waterloo is Mikhail Skuderud, who's also the director of the Canadian Labour Economics Forum and joins us for this conversation. Uh, Mikhail, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Uh, what first led you in, in this direction when you started to unearth these numbers? How did you get here? Well, I mean, this goes back a long time. I've been on your show probably a decade ago uh, talking about immigration. So this, this is, you know, my I have one area of expertise, Mike, and this, <laughs> and this is it. And it just happens to have become pretty a topical issue in the past couple of years. And so I'm getting a lot of requests to do these interviews, whereas I used to be just hiding in my office all the time and nobody wanted to talk to me. <laughs> hiding in your office, nobody wanted to talk to you. You're just going around crunching numbers. And, and, and right. among the numbers, I mean, you have pointed out very recently that Canada's non-permanent resident population now exceeds 2.5 million. You call this a runaway train. What do you mean? Mm. I think it's pretty clear what what the risks are in a in a very high non-permanent resident population. And so when I say it's a runaway train, I'm assuming that the federal government doesn't really want the numbers to be increasing as fast as they are. Why is it a risk? It's it's not hard to understand, but the problem is that we know about 80 to 90 percent of these folks would like to make a transition to permanent residency status in Canada. That's what's motivated them to come to Canada in the first place. But we cap the number of new permanent residency slots that are allocated every year. And those numbers are far below kind of the the rate of the inflow of these temporary residents. And so what's inevitably going to happen is we're going to have large numbers of folks whose temporary permits are going to expire, and they're not going to be willing or even perhaps not able to return to their homes. And so we're going to have a surging undocumented population. There's no question that's already happening. And I, I think the, the risks, we just have to look south of the border to see the, the consequences of having a large undocumented population. Even Professor Moffat has pointed out, and, and the numbers to me, Mikhail, are staggering when we look at Conestoga College and Centennial Colleges combined have issued more international student visas than the other 15 large Canadian research universities. And Conestoga College even dwarfs Centennial College. More than 31,000 international student visa approvals at Conestoga College in the last year. What do you make of those numbers? So this is a part, I mean, it's a really important question, Mike. And and I think what the, the numbers you just cited reflect a really big issue. And it's what it is, it's we've seen a shift with the current government in what in kind of what they're prioritizing in their immigration system. It used to be in Canada we had what was called a human capital model of immigrant selection, where you prioritize the applicants 
who have the highest skills, who we expect to have the highest earnings in Canada after they, they settle. What we've moved towards now is an obsession with what I think are complete nonsense uh, and, and claims about labor shortages in this country. And so it's, it's entirely shifted towards this idea of we need to plug holes in lower-skilled labor markets. And what that does is it, it incentivizes, and we've also removed all the restrictions on foreign students' work hours, so they can work as many hours as they want. So study permits have become de facto work permits. And so we're, what we're doing, what we're seeing is, you know, we're luring lower-skilled migrants to attend lower-skilled, kind of lower-quality private colleges and community colleges. And, and that's the shift in immigration. It's, it, the, the growth has not been in universities. It's been in private colleges and that we see in strip malls all over the place and, and in community colleges. You have uh, offered some policy advice to our federal government to help stem this surge. What can we, or perhaps should we, be doing here? Yeah, so what the, the kind of the angle I'm emphasizing in this is, you know, the, the gut response is to say we just need to cap these numbers. And, and I don't think that's really possible. Uh, um, I don't think it's the right way to do it either. I think, you know, there are schools like UBC and University of Toronto and, dare I say, my own university, the University of Waterloo, that are exceptional in attracting top talent and retaining top talent. That contributes a lot to Canada's economy. And so blanket caps are not going to, you know, they're, they're going to kind of hurt that, that process of selecting this top talent. So what you want to do is you want to influence migrants' own incentives to come here and sort of try their luck at what's become essentially a lottery system and how we allocate permanent residency. And so how do you do that? Well, one is we've got to we've got to go back to a system in which foreign students can't work as many hours as they want while they're in school. Um, That's a problem. We've got to also go back to a system where we're prioritizing there's a single pathway to permanent residency, and it uses a point system. We've moved away from that point system, but we we need to go back to that point system where we we cream skim the talent in the applicant pool every two weeks on something called the comprehensive ranking system, which is essentially just a prediction of people's future earnings in Canada. I think those are the two big recommendations I have. Are both the federal and provincial governments complicit in the issues that are caused by this massive influx of international student visas? Mike, I'm, I'm not, like, I try as much as possible. You probably know this from our conversations in the past. I, I avoid the politics in all this. Um, you know, like, laying blame to me is, isn't really very productive. Um, you know, they're, they're, if I have to do it, you know, tie my arms behind my back and force me to. You know, there's no question that there is lots of blame to go around. But I mean, you know, like these are systems. These are very complicated systems, and systems tend to kind of evolve in a particular way. And I think they've evolved in a particular way here that's pushing down a, down a kind of a path that's clearly not desirable. Has some big unintended consequences. And I think the issue is not, you know, that we make these policy errors. The issue is that whether we recognize them and are willing to shift when we see it, things are moving in the wrong direction. So if I have a concern and, and a criticism, it's, I think that the current liberal government in Ottawa has not been responsive enough to these, rec- these concerns. And it's still sort of that, that work hours rule for students, for example, they, they were supposed to kind of change their mind in December. That was a pilot that ended in December. They punted that another four months down the road. 
So, I mean, they, they are just not dealing with the issue. It seems like they just don't have the political courage to do it. Is there a way to simplify all of this? You talked about how complicated it's all gotten. How do we go about simplifying yeah. it? That, that's like the question nobody asked me, Mike, and it's exactly the question that matters. The pros program has become the way that immigrants make this transition from being a temporary resident in Canada to permanent resident has become so complicated. There are literally hundreds of different immigration programs that migrants need to navigate, and they can't do this without an immigration lawyer and immigration consultant. So it, what it does is it builds this massive immigration industry that kind of feeds itself and creates lots of bad incentives. There should be, in my view, economic class immigration, one program, one pathway. And it just quite simply is called a comprehensive ranking system. And that's how you do it. What that does is it gives transparency and predictability to applicants. And it tells applicants, if you don't meet the threshold of what you need to get in, then here's what you can do. You can invest in some language training. You can go and get recredentialed. Here's what you need to do to be successful. I think that's the kind of program we need to get back to. You're doing great work on this, Mikhail, and I really appreciate you making time for the show this morning. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Best of the season. Bye-bye. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Mikhail Scuderud is a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo and the director of the Canadian Labour Economics Forum. I admire his insistence on not getting involved in the politics of it all. Because really, and, and this is why I've always enjoyed Mikhail's work, and it's, he's easy to find on Twitter, just by his name, uh, Mikhail Scuderud, but he just provides the analysis. He shares the data. And then it gets picked up by Professor Mike Moffat over at the Ivy Business School at Western and one of our foremost housing authorities in the country. And Mike Moffat pointed out just a few days ago that together, Conestoga and Centennial Colleges had more international student visas issued than all of the large 15 Canadian research universities combined. And Conestoga College, with more than 31,000 of these student visa approvals, like, it's not even close to the rest. Centennial College has just under 15,000, so more than twice as many at Conestoga College than Centennial College. But you add those two numbers together, and you get more than the rest of those large Canadian research universities combined, including the University of Waterloo. Just over 2,100 international student visas approved from January of 22 to April of 23. And that's got even housing experts concerned, which I think we can understand, right? Now, look, I heard housing minister, federal housing minister, Sean Fraser, in an interview just yesterday, and he took the political football and punted it. He punted it back towards the provincial government. And I think we understand that one of the underlying issues slash concerns in the system here is the freezing of tuition 
an overall reduction, either direct or effective, in funding for post-secondary institutions? And these post-secondary institutions have had to figure out how they can generate the necessary funds for operation in the absence of what many would describe as adequate funding from the province, right? So, hey, you know what? You get a whole lot more tuition from international students. Let's open the door to more of them. The other real problem with this is when we look at the numbers and we want to talk just about the numbers, but unfortunately the numbers that we're talking about are international students, well, there are some unhealthy and unfair undertones to all of this when it comes to the problem is, of course, immigrants. Not immigration, but immigrants. The problem is not the number of students, but that the students are international students. And you can see where this goes. And it's not a place it needs to go. We do, however, I think need to take a look at the numbers as presented to us and then ask ourselves the question, what can we do to fix what clearly is becoming a problem? Not just on campuses, but on the housing or in the housing around the campuses, in the communities where these campuses operate. This is where we're at. And there's a lot of stuff that I've been directed to online that I take with a massive grain of salt because I have not seen anything posted online from anybody who I can verify as a real person or a real employer, but there is conversation around graduates of certain schools not being worth the time for an interview because of the way they present. So the argument is we're just creating diploma mills in the province. I don't know, because nobody on these online forums is using a name, a personal name, or a company name that we can verify. So I don't know that I want to go there. But the reality is more than 31,000 international student visas approved at Conestoga College from January of 22 to April of 23. And it's not even close. It's like it's the next closest school is Centennial with just under 15,000. So more than twice as many approvals at Conestoga College. And you have to ask, A, why? And B, what are the impacts of that? I think we're starting to feel the impacts of that in a variety of other areas. Your thoughts always welcome on the program. This is the Mike Farwell Show. We'll get to your calls right after this on City News 570. What we're seeing is we're luring lower-skilled migrants to attend lower-skilled, kind of lower-quality private colleges and community colleges. And that's the shift in immigration. It's, it, the, the growth has not been in universities. It's been in private colleges that we see in strip malls all over the place and, and in community colleges. Well, there's a problem. The question is, do we have the courage to try to fix it? Mikhail Scuderud is a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo. He's the director of the Canadian Labour Economics Forum, and he argues that Canada must stem the surge in temporary foreign workers and international students. The numbers are rather incredible. At Conestoga College, 31,000-plus international student visas approved over the past year. And that dwarfs the number for 
any other college or university in Canada. It is a remarkable number. And there are ripple effects of that. No question about it. Let's go to the phones and hear from you. Ian, good morning. Hey, Mike. I just finished all my marking yesterday and got to submit it today. And I can tell you for a fact, I teach a course that you would definitely think Canadian students would be part of. I have not one. I have all international students, and I would say 50% of them do not belong in that uh, course because they're just not meeting anywhere close to the standards. Um, But, you know, in terms of the community impact, uh, just go on Reddit. Uh, It's amazing when you see, you know, a Starbucks is getting 800 resumes over a weekend. The problem, Um, though, with with Reddit, though, Ian, like we have to agree, I think, you got to take it with a grain of salt because you don't know who's posting and who they really are, right? Oh, I I agree. I totally agree. So let's just be careful there. Yeah, um, but I will say, though, I did also see an open letter from an employer who said that they're at a point where they used to take Conestoga students. Yeah, and but they know I saw it, too. But who's the employer? Who's that person? Like, I don't know, I don't, Ian. Like, it could be, it's, it's very well written, but lots of people mm-hmm. can write well. So can AI. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's very true. But you know what, Mike? I, I see it firsthand, though. And you know what? I think the biggest issue I have, and like I say this about so many things, we have no balance anymore. Um, it's just, uh, Conestoga has a 1,500% increase in these international students. I'm sorry. I don't even feel like, and I don't mean this wrong, but I don't feel like I'm in Canada anymore when I walk through the halls. Um, you know, I don't see the Canadian students, or, the, or for that matter, culturally, I do not see the mix, if you want to say, of everyone sort of getting their opportunity and their chance. And I just, as a professor... It's frustrating because I don't know that I'm a professor anymore or just a PR card giver. And multiple professors, not only in Conestoga, but others that I've talked in other colleges and universities, we all feel the same. And, you know, I, I hope that uh, the government kind of wakes up to some of this data um, and we can get back to having that, that balance again. Because, you know what, I love teaching when I get a good class. I'm frustrated, unfortunately, uh, with, you know, and I just have to focus on the good students. That's that's all I can do. All right, Ian. Appreciate the call. I I don't know. I, I struggle a little bit with not feeling like you're in Canada when you walk the halls. We are, and we're a very multicultural place. So I don't know that that is the issue we need to be concerned with, as opposed to the impact in the community more broadly of the number of student visas being issued. Michael, good morning. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hope you're doing well. Um, Yeah, I really want to touch on this issue. Um, I think it's so important, and I like the way that you uh, mentioned the distinction between um, international students and enrollment um, and immigration as a whole, because I think that you know, we get into a dangerous space um, when we start to um, be critical of international students. And this starts to be what can feel like racist undertones. Um, my wife is an international student, and she came um, in 2014. Um, and I think, like you said, it's really important to look at the numbers and look at, you know, there's been pressure on Grand River Transit and housing and if we look at it strictly from that perspective, then we can say, yes, maybe it's too much, um, too fast. But if we look at social media and Reddit and TikTok and 
we start to go down this rabbit hole, um, it can it can go to a pretty bad place and a place where, again, I like to think that Canada's multicultural space is becoming increasingly multicultural, um, and we need to embrace that and think of it as something positive rather than something negative. Obviously, there are challenges that are um, happening, but I think it's important to, again, look at um, look at it from a certain perspective. But yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. You too, Michael, and thanks for saying it. It's really well said, right? We can look at the numbers, and then we can extrapolate for the impacts on transit in a given community, the impacts on housing in a given community, etc., and start asking questions, right? Are we creating undue strain on those particular systems. Forget the international part of the students for a moment. And I think Michael articulates it very well. I don't need to echo what he just said. We do have to get you to the City News Centre for an update. And then protesters disrupt shoppers under the watchful eyes of police in both Toronto and Ottawa, and nothing was done. Let's find out why. We'll have that conversation next. On the Mike Farwell Show, this is City News 570. Unsettling videos appeared over the weekend from shopping malls in both Ottawa and Toronto. And these videos show, in in one case, young kids waiting for a meeting with Santa uh, being, I I don't know, it's the right word, terrified is the word used online, scared at at the very least by protesters in the mall. I mean, these kids are just there with their parents waiting to meet Santa. And and perhaps even more concerning are the presence of protesters who say, I'll put you six feet deep to those opposed to their protest in Eaton Centre in Toronto. And, and that threat, I'll put you six feet deep with an earshot of police in Toronto who did nothing about it in the moment. Ari Goldkind is a criminal defense lawyer and joins us for a conversation about it. Ari, good morning. Good to be with you, Mike. It's always good to have you, sir. And and I wonder how, you know, three days later after these videos or this news surfaces, if you're feeling any better about the inaction of authorities in either mall. I actually feel worse about it because now that there's been some anti-social media pressure on the Toronto Police Service with their mealy mouth feckless and submitted responses the other day, which I can even get into on my personal account. Um, The police have come out and said, well, now we're looking into the monster who on camera masked like the coward that he is yelled. I'm going to put you six feet deep multiple times right in front of, and Mike, here's the part that hasn't been talked about enough. These people who you call protesters, I think that's too nice a term for them. They're monsters. The fact that you would commit a crime right in front of uniformed police officers speaks to who has all the power 
in the new 2023 Canada and who has submitted. And he not only does it once, he does it multiple times while a bunch of dazed and confused police officers, and by the way, police officers, not security guards who stand in Zara or Best Buy to make sure you don't pilfer a flat screen TV. We're talking about police officers who swear an oath to serve and protect. The question becomes, who are they serving and protecting? And they're serving and protecting a monster who brazenly in front of them while they stand there looking dazed and confused. I want to repeat that for anybody watching the video. Don't just watch the monster in the mask. Watch the police officers. They have literally handcuffed themselves. They stand there. They do nothing. And I can tell you, Mike, and I'm waiting for somebody who calls themselves a journalist in my city to actually go put these questions to the cops. I know their policies now are to not arrest people from that side. Why? Because they know if they arrest people from that side versus people with the last name Farwell, Goldkind, Mennonite, Amish, Christian, agnostic, atheist, they'll get no resistance. We'll put our hands behind our back. But for these people, the orders from above are do not arrest them, even if a crime is committed right in front of you. Why? Because we don't want this to turn into a riot and them to get even more violent than we know they can be, whether it involves terrorizing kids in front of Santa or issuing death threats. So I am even more concerned about this, Mike, because you cannot have a system, and I've been outspoken about this to my own detriment in the way the criminal justice system works, which is obsessed with race and cultural background when it comes to crime and sentencing. That, in my view, is inappropriate. But, you know, nine Supreme Court judges say I'm wrong. What do I know? But now you have this happening, and again, live on video. And if you compare how they treat with kid gloves, these monsters who are taking up Union Station, the Eaton Center infrastructure, and you compare it to people whose last names sound more like yours, Mike, or like Smith, or like Jones, or God forbid, Leach, there are two systems of policing here it's monstrous, and it's a very, very dark time for my city, my province, and my country, which is, I think, in the throes of a death spiral. The Toronto Police Association has responded by saying that the victim chose not to pursue the matter, and in that case, police would not pursue it either. When the victim does not want to participate, police do not pursue charges. You that that response has prompted you to break your own rule on social media to responding. How do you respond to that, Ari? That's right. So let's get into that because this is the part I think your listeners will find really important. And you're right. I have a rule on Twitter. I refuse to call it X, where I never respond to anything or anybody. Life is too short. I say what I think. If people like it, great. If people hate it, don't care. I'm a grown man. But the Toronto Police Association, now you've got to be fair to the Toronto Police and Toronto Police Association here, Mike, let me do it. I'm a big fan of police, even though people say, well, wait a minute, Ari, you're a criminal defense lawyer. Your life is going after police. Yes, that's right. I go after police when it's appropriate, 
when it's the right thing to do, when it's part of the case, and when I have my clients' uh, instructions to do it. But it doesn't mean that Ari, the taxpaying citizen who wants to live in a law and order society, uh, doesn't support the police fully. I mean, I think it's so hypocritical to not do that. So why do I give that preamble? I broke my rule to not respond when the Toronto Police Association came out and said, well, the victim didn't want us to essentially press charges. So we just backed off like a bunch of, I don't want to use the word, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, it's too polite, uh, impolite. So I responded and I said, well, wait a minute, that's horse manure. I invite any member of the Toronto Police Association, I invite anybody who's at the upper tier of the Toronto Police to come with me on a daily basis. Because, Mike, I'm on a break from my trial as I, from a, as I speak to you. I have a day job, 10 to 4.30 in court. Come with me and literally watch the thousands of prosecutions in Canada on a daily basis where not only have police laid charges, Mike, this is important for your listeners to understand, the victim says to the cops, I don't want to press charges. Cops, you go, you know, pound salt. Again, I'm trying to use nice terms. And the police lay charges. And then the Crown prosecutes those charges, Mike, even if there is an unwitting, unwilling, uninterested, or absconding victim. And when it's on video, as the six feet deep part is, like live, good video, good audio, we're not talking like... uh, bad closed-circuit surveillance from Radio Shack, for any of your listeners old enough to get that, the Crowns will prosecute it, and it's an easy, simple prosecution. So when I saw that coming out from the police association, I very respectfully, because I don't tweet like a three-year-old, I very respectfully said, that's completely wrong, you know it, come with me, this is not the United States of America where there is more to, quote, pressing charges, end quote, than in Canada. That's not how our system works. I thought it was abominable for the police association to put that out on behalf of their members, Mike, because I can tell you, 98% of frontline police officers, it's a number I made up, obviously, but 98% of frontline police officers know that the directives they have to do nothing, to stand by and watch this Jew hatred, from the most fastly, quickly growing voter demographic in Canada right now, which is, I think, leading to very dark times in our country. It's the reason Trudeau is so mealy-mouthed and cowardly because he doesn't want to lose votes. Paul Liev yesterday at least came out and said, I'm taking a line in the sand, even if it costs me votes. This is very, very serious when the Toronto Police Service and their union comes out and says, We're just going to stand back so long as it's one demographic, because that's really, really what they're saying when this is the same police service that arrested people for not social distancing or for opening a barbecue shop. And I can give you 50 other examples of where people were arrested when there actually was no victim. I I won't claim to be an expert, Ari, and that's why I bring people like you on the show for perspective. But I've got to think, in the modern day, language like, I'll put you six feet deep, clearly audible on a recording, 
crosses into what we would prosecute as a hate crime. Am I on the yeah, right so track here? You're, you're not only on the right track, but if I was the idiotic, unmeritorious fraud of the president of Harvard, my answer to Mike Farwell on the Mike Farwell show would be, it depends on the context. That's an inside joke for your listeners who know what I'm talking about. I got it. It's this a good is, one. <laughs> perfect. So this is not a gray area, Mike. So let's be very clear. I am somebody who's come on your show many times and said, enough with this speech is violence crap, where everybody wants everybody arrested for an offensive opinion or not using the right pronoun or supporting Trump or not voting for Trudeau, where everybody goes, that's hate speech. It's not hate speech. However, when you issue a threat to kill somebody live on tape, in front of police officers who witness it, this is key, the police witness it, and you're issuing it. Now, I don't know who the purported victim was, and I don't care, because there was some hullabaloo. Did he throw it at the police officer? Did he throw it at some guy behind? Okay? I don't even care whether it's hate-motivated, because to me, the word hate has been so perverted, you know, in the Me Too era and all of these other hashtag things where something I don't like, that Ari doesn't like, that Ari disagrees with, is somehow hate speech. No, our criminal code is very, very specific, Mike. It's all about hatred against a a definable group or advocating genocide, which, by the way, these monsters in the Eaton Center do. I digress. You have a threat to cause death to another human being, which is the simplest charge in the criminal code, Once I'm done talking and your show goes off the air, Mike, people can Google this to their heart's content. Nobody should stop listening to us or your show. But threatened death, literally a five-year-old could understand. And in no other circumstance, if this happened with somebody named Bob Jones, Bob Amish, Farwell Mennonite, Farwell Agnostic, Ari Goldkind, if any of us, if any one of your listeners did what that monster in the mask did, who represents a growing darkness and decline of civilization in Canada, there is absolutely no chance that that person would not have been arrested for utter death threats, and it makes a mockery of a system of justice, particularly where we hold ourselves out to be a democracy, where there's rule of law, where there's rules for thee, but the rules for the you know, I mean, rules for me, not for the cliche, but if you're just violent enough, evil enough, part of the most growing demographic enough, you can march all over Toronto, Kitchener, Montreal. Let's not leave Montreal out of this. And the gloves are off. Why? Because we don't want to escalate it into a riot because they can't control themselves and not get violent. This is insanity. This is the decline of the West. This is something that people have been predicting for years and years and being told, no, you're wrong, everything will be hunky-dory, we'll all sing Kumbaya, and we'll all love each other. And we're watching the very, very, very opposite happen every day, live on video. Ari, I always appreciate the time you make for the show. Uh, I wish you a very peaceful holiday season, and I look forward to our next conversation. You too, Mike. Happy holidays to you. Merry Christmas, which is, I think, a very important term to you and all of your listeners, and Happy New Year. Thank you very much, sir. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Ari Goldkind is a criminal defense lawyer. Never pulls a punch. I don't have to add anything. I will say 
this, and I, I want to give some latitude here for the shock value. I, I'm trying to put myself into the shoes of the police officers who heard, without question, I'll put you six feet deep, uttered by somebody in a crowded shopping mall, and then did nothing. Later defended by their union online whatever. I'm, I'm just going to give some latitude on the shock value there. Like, how would I respond? I mean, what, you, you got to give your head a bit of a shake, right? My concern lies in that threat being uttered audibly, publicly, and nothing coming from it. I don't care who utters that threat. I don't think you care who utters that threat. We understand the rule of law that those words constitute a criminal offense and we've let them go we've we've let them go unpunished uncontested that's the part of this that still has me concerned today we'll take a break come back with your calls it's the mike farwell show on city news 570 this is not a gray area mike so let's be very clear i am somebody who's come on your show many times and said enough with this speech is violence crap where everybody wants everybody arrested for an offensive opinion however when you issue a threat to kill somebody live on tape in front of police officers who witness it no our criminal code is very very specific and that to me is the crux of the issue. Ari Goldkind, criminal defense lawyer, joining us on the show. Let's go to the phones, hear your thoughts on what you just heard. Marino, good morning. How are you, Mike? Good, thanks. And you? I'm doing good. good. There's a couple of things at play here that are not being talked about. The first, first one, the order to stand down would have come from very high up above, believe me. Secondly, the um, issue of safety here. If the officers step in to make an arrest, they're totally outnumbered. Do you know what's going to happen? That situation is going to escalate completely out of control. Completely out of control because it's not just one person doing the talking. Everybody behind them is then going to jump in, and then you're going to have a situation where everybody gets criticized for what they do. Um, these, these types of situations are very, very difficult to deal with. I understand what the lawyer's saying about the criminal code, but he knows very well that if you go into court, first question is going to be from the uh, defense lawyer. Who was the death threat uh, directed at? The officer is going to say, I don't know. Goodbye case. You think it's that cut and dried, eh? I've been there. Okay. Okay. Marino, listen, really appreciate that. And and you're 100% on to something there in the moment. I, I don't love the response from the police union afterwards saying if the victim doesn't want to pursue charges. Again, we have clearly on video the words being spoken i'll put you six feet under that to me is more than enough to pursue the necessary charges but i take you marino you said you've been there and i get it and great points made scott good morning hey how are you i'm good and you good i i really enjoyed your your guest you had like everything he said is dead smack on the money like it's We've been heading this direction for a few years now. Like, honest to goodness, with all the a, a mosque can get broken into, like literally broken into, nobody caught. It's called the hate crime, and it's the media yourself, um, Larry Fedorik, Brian Burke. 
used to pound on it because it's the popular thing. Not, nobody will speak up and stand up and say it's it's for the good of everyone. They, it's always about the, the squeaky wheel, the squeaky group that the media, everybody focuses on. I can't, I don't, I understand why the police didn't do anything because they'll be roasted if they did because of the way everything is. Well, listen, Scott, it is a hate crime to vandalize a place of worship. I think we can understand that, to break in and disrupt whatever in that place of worship. And and I'm here telling you that what we have seen in these videos from Toronto and Ottawa, specifically in Toronto, when somebody utters the words audibly, I'll put you six feet under, uttering threats, hate crime, like take your pick. In that case, I suppose, I'm telling you that it's. The, I'm saying the same thing here. So I hope there's a consistency there that you can appreciate. We're going to get you an update from the City News Centre. And then what got us talking in 2023? Well, something that I'm still talking about because it was an opportunity for me to sit here for a conversation with the woman who discovered Rush. Fantastic conversation. Definitely worth listening to the story again. And I hope you'll stay with us to do that. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. the season to be Mary and all that good stuff. Mary? Well, that's my name. Little quote there randomly popped into my head from Christmas Vacation. If you haven't watched it yet, make sure you do before Santa comes down the chimney on Christmas Eve. It's a holiday classic. We'll talk more about those holiday classics on the show tomorrow for sure and those movies that we must just revisit each and every holiday season. In fact, coming up before one today... About uh, two hours from now, we're going to tell you about some holiday movies that you can take in on the big screen in support of charities here locally as well. So, nice little charitable component. Why not take a break from the madness and take in a movie on the big screen? All of that's to come, just because it randomly popped into my head. Uh, The reason I started this with Tis the Season is because we have arrived at that time of year where we're winding things down and it gives us an opportunity for some reflection. And in the case of this show, that reflection is about some of our favorite conversations, the things that really got us talking. And what a treat it was for me. And I'm so glad that um, Gary, who is one of our listeners, sent an email saying, you know, you should really try to get this person on the air. And I had never really considered it because, to be honest, she's a little bit like a a mythic figure to me, like larger than life. The woman who is credited with discovering the greatest rock and roll band in the history of rock and roll music, my favorite band, Rush. Never would I ever have thought that I could reach out to someone with this stature and have her so willingly and immediately accept the invitation to be on the show. But that's what happened, and it led to one of the best conversations we had this year. So I hope you enjoy, if you missed it before, hearing from Donna Halper, the music director 
some almost 50 years ago, sorry Donna, but it's the truth, who was at a radio station in Cleveland when she first heard the band Rush. She joined us for a conversation on this show back in June. You were just a little over a week ago inducted into the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. How does that sound to you? That was just amazing to me, okay? I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of these folks, okay? And radio is my life. I miss radio every day, and it is such a privilege to be on as a guest. But, I mean, I was full-time in radio for four decades, and then I had to reinvent myself, which is fine. Went back to school when I was 55, got my Ph.D. when I was 64. If you got any listeners out there that are thinking, oh, it's too late for me to do that, well, no, actually it isn't. And, you know, I'm still teaching full-time and, you know, still involved in radio as a guest on Wonder shows like yours and i mean that but every now and then you know i still miss being on the air so this is just a joy for me and when i got the phone call saying that i was being inducted and i'm i was given the pioneer broadcaster award which is basically an award given to someone who has distinguished themselves in broadcasting in a number of different ways, not just like being on the air. And in my case, I'm a media historian, and I'm pretty widely quoted. I write books, I write articles, I'm constantly researching, particularly researching the forgotten men and women of broadcasting who contributed to our lives. And now, People just don't think about them anymore. So, yeah, I mean, being acknowledged by my peers and being able to stand up there among some of the true greats. And I'm the first woman to ever win the Pioneer Broadcaster Award. I mean, what a privilege, Mr. Mike. I couldn't believe it. Well, you know, Donna, that makes me think of something else I wanted to talk to you about because we're talking about this recognition today and the first woman to win this award. But as I think back for almost five decades when you are at that radio station in Cleveland, I mean, you were you had embarked on a career as a young woman that not a lot of women were embarking on then. Absolutely. I was the first woman in the history of my university, uh, Northeastern University in Boston. Um, I was the first woman to ever be on the radio, and somehow the republic did not fall. (laughs) But but it was pretty much a shock to a lot of people, and they kind of didn't want me there. When my students today, uh, because students will get impatient, and we certainly did when we were younger, and oh, nothing has ever changed. I'm like, nothing has ever changed as recently as the 1960s and 70s. If a woman wanted to be on the air, people were absolutely horrified, okay? And today, if your daughter wants to be on the air, you're like, oh, yeah, whatever, honey, what station would you like to be on, you know? So there are so many things that have changed over the years. And if I, in some small way, contributed to opening those doors, I'm not the only one. I am one of many. But, you know, it was pretty amazing to be part of it. It wasn't amazing at the time. It was actually pretty uncomfortable and pretty unpleasant. But I met some wonderful people along the way. 
And the Rush discovery was just part of that, shall we say, that wonderfulness. I didn't know it was going to be wonderful at the time. I was a music director. I loved being a music director. It was a lot of fun. I got to hear the new music first. Radio stations could play the new music back then, and some still do. So the opportunity to give a new band a chance, I loved it, and I did it whenever I could. I know that in the grand scheme of things, the Rush discovery is just a small part of what you have contributed to broadcasting and to media. But as a devoted fan of the band, I am so happy to have the opportunity to hear you tell the story of how this all came to pass back in 1974. And the song that kind of launched it all is the same song I use as the theme song for this radio show, Working Man. And that's why I played it. <laughs> See, as a, but seriously, as a music director... I was always, I I have a blog, and um, I was blogging about how sometimes in my career I had to work at stations that played songs that I didn't like, but I had to remember that the audience liked those songs, okay? So I'm a music director. I'm not just looking for, oh, wow, I love this song. I'm looking for, here's something the audience will resonate with. And when I was sent this copy of a really kind of loving hands at home production, sort of a homegrown record on Moon Records um, by a Canadian friend of mine who was a record promoter, a guy named Bob Roper. We are still in touch to this day. I'm still in touch with the members of the band to this day. So there I am. I get this record in the mail uh, with a note saying basically our label isn't going to sign them. We don't quite think they're ready. But there's some talent here. See what you think. And I listened, and I listened to Working Man because it had the lyrics. Well, I get up at 7, yeah, I go to work at 9, got no time for living, yes, I'm working all the time. Cleveland was a factory town back then. Today it has much more, you know, intellectual core. There's a very nice theater scene, this, that. They had a little of that back then, but mainly it was a factory town. And I figured... This song will speak to my audience. And it did. And the phones lit up. I mean, if you asked me back then, well, did you think you're going to be friends with these guys for 48 years? I would have said, yeah, right. Because as a music director, my job was to bring new songs to the audience. And if they liked them, terrific. And if they didn't, well, at least I know I tried. And I believed in working men, but I had no way of knowing it would lead to such a long relationship and the fact that I'd be able to help them get a star on the Walk of Fame and be with them at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and et cetera. That was gravy. But at the time in the spring of 74, the opportunity was to give a new Canadian band a chance. And I played a lot of imports, okay? So the fact that they were Canadian, fine with me. I love Canada. I get up there whenever I can. Used to do a lot of business in Eastern Canada when I was a radio consultant. So, you know, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. But back then, just an opportunity to give a talented Canadian band a chance. I did. You know where it led. 
but it really started with the fact that I was right. The audience did like working men, and it went from there. How did the relationship with the band itself begin to form, Donna? Well, there again. Now, I can count on the fingers of 9,000 hands how many (laughs) favors I have done for people in the industry over the years, okay? But in most cases, never even got so much as a thank you. Now, mom raised me to send thank you notes, you know, to be grateful, this and that. But, you know, some folks, I guess that's just not how mom raised them, or dad for that matter. But in the case of Rush... When I got in touch with their management, and they had two managers back then, and when I got in touch with them and told them that we were getting good airplay in Cleveland, first they were really surprised because they weren't getting a lot of airplay in Toronto at the time, but there they were getting airplay in Cleveland. Imagine their surprise. But what ended up happening was the guys came down to do a gig, And we sort of became friends. Back then, I was kind of a big sister. But then when they no longer needed a big sister, they kept in touch. And that's been what's so unusual about these guys, okay? Back then, they kept in touch because, oh, my God, we're getting airplay in Cleveland. Years later, they kept in touch because... Well, it was the right thing to do, and Donna helped get our career going, and she defended us in the trades, and she wrote about us, and she spoke well of us, and they kept in touch because they're just nice people. If you saw the documentary Beyond the Lighted Stage, uh, which came out in 2010, I'm in it four times, but that's not the reason to watch it. The reason to watch it is what you see is what you get. There's a scene where they're eating donuts at Tim Hortons. <laughs> yep, that's that's them, eating donuts, Tim Hortons. You know, I don't know if there is a Tim Hortons anymore, but my point is the fact remains. These are just down-to-earth guys. Yeah, they're richer. Yeah, they've had bunches of awards, but success never spoiled them, and they are, in fact, the same guys now as when I called their management back in 74 and said, hey, we're getting a lot of airplay. We need some records down here. And, you know, the manager, Dick Wilson, you know, and Ray Daniels was the other. They're like, we are? We're getting airplay in Cleveland? Really? And yes, they were. And it all started from there. It started with an act of altruism from a Canadian record promoter, and it continued with acts of gratitude and friendship from everyone in the Rush organization. Given the depth of your experience, Donna, the amount of time you spent in radio stations, as a music director, on the air, being a consultant, etc., can you put your finger on, I mean, I love the story and it makes perfect sense. A factory town would absolutely gravitate to a song like Working Man and the lyrics that it expresses. But beyond that, 40 plus years later, and this band is iconic, not just in Canada, but beyond. Can you put your finger on what might contribute to that level of success for this trio? Well, I'm going to be very honest with you. And I know when people say, hey, I'm going to be honest with you, it's like, what, everything else you said was a lie? (laughs) But no, in this case, I'm going to be very honest and do the I don't know. Um, Half 
I don't know. Half I do know. These are just a hardworking bunch of guys. The organization, the people in it are just wonderful. The guys, God rest the soul of Neil Peart. Mm. You have never seen three musicians who worked harder, went to more cities, spent more time perfecting their craft, cared deeply about putting on good shows for the fans, and it clicked. Now, the I don't know part is, why did that group click and insert name of your favorite band who went nowhere didn't click? That is one of the mysteries of life. As a music director, I played so many bands where I thought to myself, oh, these guys are going to be great, or these gals, and nothing happened. And I played Rush, and I was right. And there were some other bands that I played, and I was right. And good for me, I get a cookie. I'm glad I was right. But the fact still remains. Part of why Rush became successful is that intangible thing where they were the right band at the right time for the right audience, and they worked their butts off to continue being the right band. Now, are they everyone's cup of tea? No, they're not. And they never were, and they never wanted to be. They are themselves. They are unique. They have always wanted to be true to themselves. But if you were to ask me, hey, did you know that they were... No, I had no idea that they were going to resonate with a certain audience and that that audience would grow and sustain itself. And that is the privilege of it all. I feel so grateful. People always ask me, like, well, did you get a finder's fee? <laughs> I did, No, I got a 48-year friendship, and I got my name on a couple of their albums. How lucky am I? Okay? So this isn't about the money, and it never was. It was about providing good music, and these guys provided it. They gave it to people. They shared it. They're still sharing it, even after they've broken up. We still get people that are like new fans. They just discovered the band. It's amazing to me that I was part of that. Could I tell you why it happened with this band as opposed to some other? Nah, I really can't. But I'm just delighted that it happened for them. Because as I said when I gave the speech at the Walk of Fame... This is living proof that sometimes the good guys do finish first because these are just good guys, and I am so glad they had a great career. I don't think... I, I wouldn't be the same person without having discovered them at a young age and been listening to them all this time. I, I, I think we've all been fortunate for that experience, but I don't know that I've ever been more fortunate than this moment to have this conversation with you, Donna. Thank you very much. Congratulations again on your deserving induction into the Massachusetts Broadcasters Hall of Fame. But thank you, moreover, for making time for our show today. Well, thank you for having me on. Keep doing what you're doing. If ever I can be of any further help, my pleasure. Thanks to your listeners for supporting live and local radio. And keep on keeping on. Us Rush fans, we're a worldwide community. Thank you, Donna. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Donna Halper, Associate Professor at Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She is credited with discovering the greatest rock band in the history of rock and roll, Rush, back in 1974. You get some of the story there as we listen back to one of the conversations that got us talking in this past year. I received a number of messages after that 
first interview. It was back in June. How much you enjoyed it. And for me, I just got to tell you, I was blown away at the accessibility of Ms. Helper. How when I reached out, because honestly, for me, it's like it's like reaching out and inviting one of your heroes onto the show with you. And she graciously and immediately accepted, and we were able to have that conversation. Donna has written too about that discovery and how it all went down. How she gets credited with discovering. Rush back in 74. I'll share that link uh, via my Twitter at Farwell underscore WR. It's a fun read and I think you'll enjoy it. Hopefully as much as you enjoyed listening to that conversation. What got us talking in 2023? Right here on the Mike Farwell Show, this is City News 570. But at the time, the opportunity was to give a new Canadian band a chance. I did. You know where it led. But it really started with the fact that I was right. The audience did like working men, and it went from there. Donna Halper, an associate professor at Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, the woman credited with discovering the rock band Rush back in 1974. I have just begun... My in Life, the book by Getty Lee. Strongly recommend already, even though I'm three chapters in. Check it out. Read it over the holidays. I'm going to finish it for sure when holiday time sets in. Let's go to the phones. Ian, good morning. Hey, Mike. I just messaged Donna to say she's, she's amazing and she did an amazing job talking with you. It was, it was great to hear her again. Uh, I've, I've met her a couple of times. She's an amazing lady and uh, uh, quite a... Quite a talent with uh, multiple areas. She's also a, a prof as well, and uh, you know has really brought radio to a forefront um, with you know some things. I really miss those days though of the DJ discovering the band or presenting audiences to new bands. Uh, we don't have that anymore. We're so corporate controlled, and it's kind of sad. Wow, it's not but, even that though, Ian. We don't have that kind of power anymore. No, like the and, music and, and, gets out way so- before it gets to a radio station. Yeah, and there's so much great music out there. But, you know, for all those who don't really like Rush, I always tell them, make sure that you understand there are multiple tributes and covers of Rush songs. And not just from other bands, but even like the Royal City Orchestra of uh, London, UK. And even for that matter, I sent it to you as well. I was at Rush Fest Scotland in May. Um, But I am now on the Songs for Neil Volume 4 album with a seven-minute medley of pipe organ Rush song so rush songs done on uh, the pipe organ at first united in waterloo so if they get a chance uh, they can check that out rush fest scotland and you know you realize how beautiful uh music these guys actually make um and and you know after 40 50 years like these guys are incredible and it was always about the music and it was always about what who they were and that's something i really miss with so many bands uh, i really i sometimes i feel we're too corporatized with music and and let, let's just let people do music that they feel is you know who they are and and bring something new uh for us to uh, to really enjoy and listen to thanks ian appreciate that it's always been about the music with rush for me the musicianship on display by just those three guys is second to none in my humble estimation uh Please do check out the book and check out Donna's story as written uh, about discovering Rush via my Twitter at Farwell underscore WR. Got to get you to the news center for an update. And then you ever notice those old barns on our rural landscapes in these here parts? Well, they're starting to disappear, but one group 
wants to make sure we have some memory preserved. We'll meet that group next on the Mike Farwell Show. Stay with us on City News 570. Well, if I've said it once, I've said it 128 times on the show. One of my favorite things about living here, living exactly where I live, is that you can be in the heart of a city center one minute, and then ah, 10 to 15 minutes later, you can be out in the beautiful rural areas that surround our major cities here in this region. And when you're out in those rural areas, not only... Do you have the opportunity to buy all manner of things at the end of a gravel laneway? You know, farm fresh eggs, flowers, whatever, produce, etc. But you also see so many barns that kind of dot the landscape. Some of them older and you can see their newer cousins, if you will, that have been built to support existing farming operations. But those old barns find a way to hang on and stand up. And they all tell me a story. They just take me back in time to when they were first built and what it meant to the land at the time. The thing is, though, that these barns are beginning to disappear. As I said, some brand new ones stand almost immediately adjacent to the older ones. And there is a group that is trying to preserve these old barns, at least by way of tracking them. Hugh Fraser is the president of the Ontario Barn Preservation and joins us for a conversation. Hugh, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Glad to be here. It's great to have you here, and I absolutely love the work you're doing. Why did you start doing it? Why create this census to preserve these old barns? Well, you know, you can't we can't and we shouldn't have to try to save every barn that's out there. But, um, you know, we want to be able to preserve these barns in the virtual world uh, long after they're gone in the physical world. And so that's that's how we uh, decided to do this, create a database so people could actually enter their barns uh, for future historians, researchers and barn lovers. What is it? Are you a barn lover? Is that what motivated you to do this? Well, I am a barn lover, yes. I was raised on a dairy farm. Um, I've been in thousands of barns, literally thousands of barns. I've worked with farmers my entire life. I still do in semi-retirement. I wrote a book about uh, barns. I'm writing a second one, and I just can't get enough of old barns. I was in an old barn yesterday, Mike. No. Yes, built about 1840. Beautiful, beautiful barn. It does tell the story, doesn't it? Like, built in 1840, so almost 200 years old, and the sucker is still standing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just amazing workmanship. And, and you know, those things are, are built so well. They're almost, uh, like, you couldn't drag them down. You have to dismantle them piece by piece because they're just built so well. It strikes me, Hugh, that the process of documenting all of these barns, creating and maintaining this database might be a rather arduous one. How do you go about doing it? Oh, it's it's it took us a long time to plan this. And, um, and many people have tried to do a similar thing, but through uh, paper versions. We decided the simplest way was to do an online thing. And, and, there's, and there's many different ways you can do it. You can send a, a handful of barn experts out to barns to get perfect information. 
Uh, but we decided there's just too many barns out there. So we made it a simpler process for barn owners themselves to actually go online. Uh, we've got a series of questions, lots of helpful pictures, schematics to help them record important things about their barns uh, for the future. Does it sadden you, Hugh, that some of these barns, you know, you mentioned again, you were just in one yesterday that's almost 200 years old. Someday, I suspect it won't stand anymore. Does that sadden you? Uh, It does sadden me. It does sadden me. But, you know, times change. Um, You know, times do change. Uh, and, And we can't stop progress. These old barns don't fit with modern agriculture. That's just the way it is. It's not wrong. Nobody did anything wrong. It's just the way it is. You know, when you talk about modern agriculture, though, that touches on something else that I think is connected to this, even just admiration for these old barns. Somebody like me who's never worked the land in his life but can, you know, create these stories when he sees the barns on the landscape. This this does speak to our agricultural roots and how important agriculture has been to the economy previously and continues to be today. Absolutely. I mean, this this province, in my opinion, my humble opinion, was built on agriculture and still is. And um, and these barns played a big, big part in that. Uh, but So they helped us, but now they need us to help them. Uh, you know, that's why we're advocating for them. They, they can't do it on themselves. Um, and and you know, you talk about stories, Mike. I couldn't I couldn't help. I got on early at this, and I listened to your story about Rush. And uh, I actually have a barn story about Rush. Come on now. No, I'm not kidding. Yeah. So <laughs> so so I'm chasing down a story about a teenage Neil Pert who was local legend says he used to practice in, a, in an old barn here in Niagara. And uh, so I'm trying to, to write a little story about that, but I haven't been able to nail that down yet. So maybe you've got a listener who knows, uh, who can verify that. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting. I'll be darned. What a connection that is. And it makes sense, Niagara area, because he's from St. Catharines. Yes, so. that's exactly right. And there's a ton of old barns uh, down in here. Yeah. Sure. So is your group... Ontario Barn Preservation, Hugh, mainly volunteer run? Oh, yes. It's yeah. all volunteer run. Yeah, we don't have any paid employees. We're relatively new. Uh, we only started just before the pandemic. And the and the irony of that is that uh, our board of directors has not even all met each other yet because we meet every month over Zoom. And uh, so we haven't even met everybody yet because Ontario is a big place and we've got directors and uh, regional representatives from all over the province, northern Ontario, east, south, north, you name it. And do all of these folks just come together over their shared love of the old barn? Yeah, yeah. yeah, we, we have... We have all kinds of different members. We have uh, farmers, we have advocates, we have writers, we have architects, engineers. Uh, it's a really diverse group. So what does the database end up looking like? Are there pictures associated with it? Will it be searchable for any old Joe and Jane Ontarian that wants to look at this history of Barnes? So so that's an excellent question. We haven't figured out all of that yet. It will not be accessible by everybody in the general public just for for um, confidentiality reasons. 
And so there's going to be a protocol on who who can see it and how much they can see it. But there will be some access by the general public, or at least there'll be some reports made up that people can see it. But yes, so we show people how to measure their barns. We show people how to take good photos. You know, you can take a million photos of a barn, but some of them are not helpful. So we show them how to take photos, how to look for things, give them examples of things to, to look for uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's fairly fairly uh, robust uh, study. What makes a barn photo a good barn photo? Ah, so so there's different photos you can take from outside. They might be a uh, a view that shows uh, the end wall, the side wall, and the roof at the same time. A perspective sort of a picture. Uh, there's photos you can take directly from the side, directly from the end. It can tell you a lot of things about the size of the barn, the uh, the slope of the roof, um, things that are on the outside of the building. And then inside, we like to see the uh, the structure of the thing. Uh, we like to see how the roof is, connect- is put together, uh, some of the mortise and tenon joints, um, you know, lots of different neat features. It, it's amazing some of the things I've found in, in barns that people have, that owners have never even seen before, like carvings and, and messages and, and things like that. Very interesting. Absolutely incredible. And I, I can only imagine you, the depths of this work. I mean, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, across the Ontario landscape. Is there a, I don't want to say an end date necessarily, but like how... Is there enough that you will decide, okay, this work is completed? Is there any plan like that at this point? I can't even imagine getting to the end of this. Sure. We figure, and nobody really knows the number, but we figure there were probably a half a million barns in at the peak around 1900. Um, certainly there's nowhere near that anymore, but there's still thousands and thousands of barns out there. Um, uh, we're just really getting nicely into it. Um and so we're we're hoping to get barns of all different descriptions, not just the ones you see around uh, Waterloo, you know, uh, timber frame ones, but but stone barns you might find around Fergus, uh, or um, we had somebody put a round barn. Uh, one of your listeners, I think they would be in your listening area, put a round barn into our database recently, and there's. That's magical because there's just not that many round barns around anymore. Absolutely incredible. Where can folks, if their interest is peaked like mine was, and that's what led to this conversation, Hugh, where can they find out more about Ontario barn preservation and maybe help you in the work? Yeah, so so the simplest thing would be to go on our website, uh, OntarioBarnPreservation.com. There's tons of information there, lots of photos, uh, blogs. We've got, I don't know, we must have a hundred blogs on there now, of all things dealing with barns. There's artists' uh, pictures of things. You know, it's amazing what's what's on there. So uh, just go on there. There's a link to our study. Um, you know, you can go and take a look at it, walk through some of the questions. All we ask you is that if you don't have a barn or you're not sure you want to fill it out, don't hit the... Uh, the button at the end that says submit. Otherwise, there'll be, uh, uh, you know, nothing into the database uh, uh, at all for that place. Sure. And you want to make sure that what's going in there is worth being there, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yes, of course we do. But, you know, we don't need to have, you know, we don't need to have 100% of the information about every barn. If we have the location and some of the key details of the thing, um, that's that's good enough. And it, it's it's for barns that are standing and barns that are falling down. 
and even barns, Mike, that no longer exist. So if you know a lot about your old barn that was maybe taken down in 1980, uh, if you've got pictures and measurements and everything else, we want your barn too. I think it's fantastic. Super interesting stuff. Uh, Hugh, keep up the good work, and thanks very much for making time for the show today. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hugh Fraser is the president of Ontario Barn Preservation. You can find them online, ontariobarnpreservation.com. And how do you like that? A little connection to Neil Peart and practicing his craft in a barn in the Niagara area. Some of those dots already begin to connect. For whatever reason, when I came across this story and the census attached to it called Your Old Barn Study, it just struck a very nostalgic chord with me because I really do, I love being out in the countryside, seeing all those old barns that still stand, in some cases hundreds of years later, even though the newer modern barn for today's modern agricultural practices is the barn that's being used on a day-to-day basis but the old barn still stands and even if it's beginning to really show its age and it's got you know some slats missing whatever the case may be seeing those barns out there just i don't know tells me some kind of story and we are after all lest we forget in the barn raising community right we're known for our barn raising around here and we would put those suckers up in a real short amount of time when the entire community would get involved in raising that barn i think it's pretty cool uh ontario barn preservation.com speaking of nostalgia a story in yesterday's paper really caught my eye and i wonder like i get the feeling that you would probably do this even though we are it seems anyway in the biggest hurry of our lives all the time, right? We got to get places as quickly as possible. We don't have time to waste any extra minutes at any of the stops we're making, especially this time of year. But I wonder, would you consider taking the slow lane? A grocery store noticed a trend with its customers and decided that they needed just that. A slow lane. Would you take it? We'll tell you the story, and I'd love to hear from you coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. We're hoping to get barns of all different descriptions, not just the ones you see around Waterloo, you know, timber frame ones, but stone barns you might find around Fergus. Or we had somebody put a round barn, one of your listeners, I think they would be in your listening area, put a round barn into our database recently. And that's magical because there's just not that many round barns around anymore. Hugh Fraser is the president of Ontario Barn Preservation, a volunteer-run organization that aims to do just that, preserve the countless, like tens of thousands of barns across this province. And we know we can't keep them all standing forever. And the associated costs, of course, connected to that. But what about preserving them virtually in their database? You can check it out, ontariobarnpreservation.com. Ken tweets me at farwell underscore WR. These old agricultural buildings are part of our heritage and preservation is super important. And Dennis also writes via email to mike at 570news.com 
about the barn not far from his place, and I know Dennis is in Wilmot Township, that is run down, but home to turkey vultures <laughs> most of the time. Now, I I really think like the barns that dot our landscape tell pretty interesting stories, and all of this really struck a nostalgic chord with me, which reminded me of a story I read in my paper yesterday. Uh, it was actually on the front page of the Globe, and it really caught my attention and I wanted to share. And I wonder, like, something tells me I could convince you to do this. Would you, at the grocery store of all places, take the slow lane? This lane at this particular grocery store in Red Deer, Alberta, has a sign that says, slow down. Lots of O's in both slow and down. It's the slow down and have a chat lane. And the owners of this particular grocery store noticed that even when the store wasn't all that busy and there were lots of lanes open, including the dreaded self-checkout. Don't even get me started with my feelings on the self-checkout. But even when it wasn't that busy in the store, customers would be lining up to go through the checkout where, oh, let me get her name, Sharon Turner was working the till. And they would do that because Sharon always had something to say. As the article points out in her Newfoundland lilt, so leave it to a Newfie to be the chatty, friendly one, right? Oh, I have such fondness for those members of our community. But the article points out there's small talk about the weather, snow on the roads. She'll gently rib husbands who've forgotten their shopping bags. She asks customers about their grandkids and their latest vacations. So the owners, recognizing how popular Sharon's line was, even in an otherwise empty grocery store, approached her and said, hey, how would you like to staff this line every day and it will become the slow checkout line where, yeah, it's going to take a little bit longer to go through the line, but you're going to be engaged in conversation with another human being. Apparently, this follows the model started by a Dutch supermarket chain that also operates really laid-back, chatty checkouts as just a small way to mitigate loneliness. So think about those folks for whom the trip to the grocery store might be their only social interaction of that day or that week. This could mitigate loneliness. But over and above that, how about just the opportunity it presents to any of us for that interaction with our fellow humans? I am not the biggest fan of grocery shopping. I usually want to get in there and get out of there as quickly as I possibly can. But you know, this gives me pause. And you're ding-dang right, I would take the slow lane. Just like I would gladly once again attend a full-service gas station where somebody comes out, fills the tank for you, cleans the windshield, maybe asks if you want the oil checked. I don't know. It just took me back to a different time. The slow lane at the grocery store. And by the way... Sharon Turner and her Newfoundland lilt in, of all places, Red Deer, Alberta. Go figure. But I think I would be inclined to take the slow lane. I'll have a conversation with you, Sharon, and anybody else who wants to take the time for a human, face-to-face, in-person interaction. Hey, the best we can do on this show 
is our conversations. And I hope you're interested in participating in them because the next half hour is all yours. We call it question or comment. Open lines coming up for you on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. I cannot tell a lie. I rarely know without checking what day of the week it is anymore. (laughs) I have such a hard time with that because I'm always looking ahead to the next show, even whilst working on the current show. A little bit distracted, but want to make sure that we give you the very best that we can every single day. I bring up the day of the week because I know that on Wednesday mornings at this time, we open up the phone lines for your questions and or comments. It's an open line opportunity for 30 minutes every Wednesday morning from 1130 until noon. You got a question, ask it. You got a comment, make it. If I could be so bold as to begin with a question to you, am I more interesting than a bag full of popcorn? Am I saltier than a bag full of popcorn? I ask and I will share the photo as soon as I get an opportunity. So... If you follow on Twitter or Instagram at Farwell underscore WR, I will get the picture posted before noon, I promise, so you can see the picture behind the question. But (laughs) Adam Sanderson, love the kid. He is our primary producer for Kitchener Rangers broadcasts. And so he's usually here in the station when nobody else is at night and when I'm on the road or out broadcasting a hockey game, Adam is the guy back here at the station managing things. He sent me a picture yesterday of a giant bag of popcorn sitting in the chair that I'm sitting in right now, headphones on top of it or around it, and he said in his caption, I found your replacement. I couldn't quite figure this out. And then I put it all together this morning when I saw the bag still sitting here. Like, I thought Adam was just playing some kind of joke on me. He used to work at the Apollo Cinema. He doesn't anymore. And I, but I, I just thought, like, did he get a bag of popcorn? Did he steal a bag of popcorn? These are the questions I have. Anyway, my good friend Eric Hoshuli, uh runs Thunderstorm Productions, does great work. I, I just love him. He's so creative. He's so much fun. And he had sent me a message. And he said, I've got something to drop off for you. For the holidays, are you going to be around the station tomorrow? He asked me this yesterday. I said, yeah, I'll be there. Would love to see you. Then I get a message last night. Sorry, I got called out of town. I just dropped it off now, and you'll get it in the morning. And I thought to myself, well, good luck. Whatever he's dropping off outside the radio station in the hallway, I mean, it could disappear by morning. But no, Adam managed to get it, bring it in here. So I got my bag of popcorn this morning. Another question I might be inclined to ask is, what does a giant bag of popcorn have to do with Christmas? But hey, whatever. It's better than fruitcake. I'll tell you that for free. Anyway, am I more interesting than a bag of popcorn? Am I saltier than a bag of popcorn? Maybe you can answer those questions as we get to your phone calls here on question or comment. And I will post the picture at Farwell underscore WR on both the Twitter and the Instagram. 519-570-2545, star 570-1800-570-5715. Feel free to answer one of my questions, ask one of your own, tell an interesting story. It's up to you. 
Jersey Bill, good morning, sir. Hey, you know, sometimes you're salty, sometimes you're, you know, sweetly nostalgic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and in terms of nostalgia, there's a couple of things. I, well, one thing is I tried to, I was taking my grandson out to see the uh, Aberfoyle uh, St. Jacob's Railway, and that's unfortunately closing. He was really upset about that. Uh, hopefully they'll find a new place to go, but uh, that's uh, they the rent was just getting too high for them in uh, that location. That is sad. Yeah, I love me some model trains. Yes. Yeah, you, it's it's a, it was a wonderful display, uh, and I just uh, and <laughs> really sad that they he missed we missed it by one. But they closed they, their last uh, operating time was the week weekend before. So we we they actually let us in. We looked around. So that was. Yeah, but uh, it's unfortunate that uh, attractions can't maintain themselves the way they they might have in the past. And the other thing was I, you know, you know, I belong to the New Apostolic Church, and uh, you know, the uh, I just happened. <laughs> the reason I did is my my card battery died, so the, the after I got the charge, the guy said, "Well, we'll drive around." So I drove up uh, up up into Waterloo, and I passed the Krause site. And uh, I noticed that they're really <laughs> carrying into it. It's it's really going. Uh, I I'm, I didn't have any personal uh, relationship to the to the company, but of course, he is being the leader of the church for so many years. And uh, from that site, he had his um, rather large, old fashioned, uh, uh, you could say, uh, um, uh, 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 outreach that he did in many places of the world. Uh, you know that that all sort of into that. So as I stopped, I took a few pictures as it's, as it's uh, also becoming a thing in the past. You know, I like your uh, nostalgic side too, Billy, and I thank you for that. Those memories will have to be preserved somehow. That's why the Ontario Barn Preservation is doing the work that it's doing. And yeah, a once proud factory. Look, think of Bud Automotive. Oh, the stories I could tell. The stories I could tell when I worked in manufacturing, that was the beacon. That's where everybody, well, maybe not everybody, but certainly me and many of my coworkers at the plant we worked at thought, oh, those guys at Bud, they've got it all. That's the place, man. Yeah, good on you, Billy, for taking a moment to do that, preserving some of that. Keith, over to you. Good morning. Good morning to you, sir. I really enjoyed your uh, topic of the the slow lane in the uh, grocery store. It's kind of cool, eh? yeah, it's really neat. I just moved back from Nova Scotia, from a small, small village, and um, I had a really hard time having moved back, getting used to the the, the quick pace of and the, the rush and the, the you know the self serve lanes and that sort of thing. Down in uh, the place I was was New Germany, and um, not a huge population, but. You go in for groceries, and where it would take a normal person uh, from Ontario, I guess, uh, maybe 10 minutes to pick up what they want. By the time you come out of the grocery store, you know the cashier, uh, you know uh, where, where she was last week, and you know the butcher by name. And it's a real experience. It's, it's so good to be friendly. And... Um, People today, you know, they you say hi to them, and they look suspicious. They, uh, they they wonder, what do you want? I find that all the time, and yet I'm the first one to hold the door and say good morning and, and uh, you know, try to make people smile at me. Good for you, uh, Keith. Don't stop doing that. It really does no, matter, I right. think. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. Really appreciate the call. Welcome back from Nova Scotia. Glad you're here. I really am. It just reminds me of... A good friend of mine, man, 
We met on the first day of high school, my buddy Schnurzy and I, in Mr. Heiser's science class at St. Jerome's. Don't ask me the grade I got on my midterm. Do not ask. I will not. 39%. Anyway, that's where I met Schnurzy, and we've been friends ever since. And just, I don't know, this past summer, I guess, several months back, he, he and the family moved down east, and they are now in... Oh, my gosh. Newfoundland. Sorry, I was thinking, was it New Brunswick or Newfoundland? It's my good buddy. Anyway, but, and and his wife does a great job with social media, giving regular updates on how life is going. It's just a different pace. I can totally relate to what Keith is talking about. I shared this with you when I was on my motorcycle trip this past summer, and we rode some of the most beautiful, beautiful countryside through New York State, Pennsylvania, into New Hampshire. I mean, it was just, it was glorious. Got out to Maine. And then coming back home five days on the road, and all of a sudden I'm back on the QE. And I'm like, what? What fresh hell is this? Like, we are are in such a hurry. Such a hurry. I'm with Keith. I will greet you wherever I run into you. I will smile. I will wave. I will say hello. It's one of the best parts of dog walking. Uh, It's just, you know, we need a little bit more of it. And who couldn't spare another five minutes to take the slow lane at the grocery store, huh? Come on. Keith and I are going to keep doing it. Romeo, good morning. Morning, Mike. How are you? Hey, I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Good. I'm, just, I'm relating to your last comment, uh, also about the checkout lanes and yeah. stuff like that. Just in general, Mike, I find like people don't take the time and say, hi, how are you today? Like, um, like I really totally relate to like, your last customer. A lot of people are really weary of when you say hi to someone. And it's kindness is free, and it should be spread around, not just that time of year, 365 days a year. And my mom and I, late, uh, she passed away a couple of years ago, but one thing I took from her, and she realized a long time ago people just walk around with frowns on their faces. If you go around and say, hey, nice shoes, man. I really like your shoes. Or I really like how your hair is today. It takes two seconds to make someone say like that. And that's all I have to say. Merry Christmas, Mike. Merry Christmas, Romeo. I love that. Kindness is free, right? I've been accused before of saying it similarly. Kindness costs you nothing. And here's the thing. If I can just take it half a step further with what Romeo says... The hi, how are you? The how are you is so insincere. And it's not your fault. We've just kind of made, hey, how's it going? Like a commonplace phrase. It's a throwaway. Try, like try to ask it with intention. Meaningfully ask somebody, how are you? Listen to their answer. You know, hi, how are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. No, no, no. Like take an extra few seconds and actually Talk about, how are you? You might be amazed at the outcome of that. Romeo, I'm proud of you, buddy, taking that away from your mom. Kindness is free. Let's spread it around. It's like currency, except it costs you nothing. Kyle, good morning. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. How are you? You know what? I can never be better when I call into the station, that's for sure. I love hearing that, buddy. I love hearing it. Now, I've got a question. Okay. 
before I go to my nostalgic thing, I just want to say that I've known my two best friends since kindergarten, and we still keep in touch to this day through uh, Facebook. Even though we're in three different countries, but we have a Facebook group called NAFTA because I'm in Canada, my buddy's in Oklahoma, and my other buddy's in Mexico. <laughs> so I love we it. Laugh, we always joke around it. But um, so these check-in lanes, or you know how people are talking about these, you know, these slow lanes and fast lanes. Can I, is there going to be like a toll lane where I could pay the extra 20 bucks to cut everybody in line and be the first one? No, to stop it. Why do you want to be that way? Why you ruin a nice thing? We're trying to have a moment here, Kyle. Why you got to be that way? Because some people like myself, you know, time is a valuable thing and I might be, you know, I, I can't sit around and wait to be in check-in all day. So I got, I'll pay the extra 20 bucks, butt in line, and I'll, I'll continue on. I'll still say, yes. hi, how are you? And, and to all those people that I'm cutting in line, but yeah, that's, I just, I just yes. thought that's it. Dumbass. I know, I know, Dumbass. I know, I know. I'm being like the Grinch like you from last week. So I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, yeah. Kyle. Yeah. You yeah. you can do that. You can pay that 20 bucks and, and do the first in line line, but the 20 bucks has to go to charity. Oh, I'll do that all the time. If they still, if they, if they, you know what, for Christmas, I mean, like, you know, like, obviously they have the, um, What's the one the 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 ringing of the bell? Oh, my gosh. They do it every year for Christmas. You know what I'm talking about, the Salvation Army. If they just had that all year, every year, I'd be the first one to donate 20 bucks every time it was there. Even cystic fibrosis. If you, if you put a... Oh, even cystic fibrosis. fibrosis. Lucky me. Oh, I'll even yeah. give it to your charity, Farwell. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'll even sit there and ring the bell for you, my friend. So. All right. All right. Thanks, there, Mike. I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate it. That's the problem, though. Look, I love Kyle like a brother, but that is the problem, right? No, no. Forget this. Slow down. Have a chat lane. I'm so damn busy. And I'm so damn important that I need the capitalist lane where I can pay money to get to the front of the line and get out of here quicker because I don't have time for you bunch of yahoos out there, right? That's the problem. We have a bunch of yahoos. All right, let's go next to Ibrahim. Ibrahim, good morning, sir. Good morning, guys. How are you I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? Good, good, not bad. Good. Uh, I, I just I would like to comment to Mike the the criminal lawyer you have there. Yeah, the Ari Goldkind was on earlier. Yeah, yeah. every time he, you do interview with him, of course, he goes all over the map. I don't know some of the things he but Okay, I found some of his language really, I would say hate and fear-mongering. Okay, one of the, for example, he used police, they would uh, arrest him or this group if their last name, Mike, or, uh, you know, John, whatever. It's this kind of language, and he goes, he didn't mention he Western civilization. I don't know why he goes so many other things that he uses. If that is the case, if that, like victimization card, okay, we are the victims, others who do not look like us. They, uh, they got a uh, uh, special treatment. If that is the case, in Toronto, it wasn't long ago, and every time they publish it every year, to Toronto where he lived, last month, I think, or this month, I, I'm sure, Mike, you heard this news. The black people stopped twice or three times than white counter. Yes. Just driving. So if that is the case, they're getting, you know, a special treatment. Why? They absolutely, I don't know what he's, I think in my view, he has an agenda. He wanted to spread and use your uh, station every time you bring him or with whatever social media he has to spread that kind of thing. So, so I think people like him, they should, and even he told you 
When I go, you know, in, uh, in uh, social media, he said, I don't care. He's alive in short only. I have to say whatever I want. But these people, they have to be responsible. He's a criminal lawyer and it is, uh, it should be responsible, you know, to whatever is said because he will influence others who are following him. That's what I want to say, Mike. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ibrahim. I appreciate you and your phone call and your point of view. And yes, Ari made it very clear. I am here to tell you how I feel. I am here to tell you my opinion. You don't have to like it, and that's okay. I'm a grown-up, and I can take it. And Ibrahim clearly did not like what Ari had to say earlier today. That's okay. You don't have to, and you can call in and say why you don't like it, which Ibrahim just did. And we can disagree, and we can move on and continue being civil to one another. I, I remain, and I will share again just my concern that somebody can say audibly on video in a crowded shopping mall in Toronto, I'll put you six feet under, and there is no repercussion for that. I'm not sure I'm okay with that. We'll take a break, come back with more question or comment. It's part of the Mike Farwell Show every Wednesday morning on City News 570. Question or comment continues until noon, 11.30 until 12. Every Wednesday morning, we open the phone lines so we can answer your questions or hear your comments. 519-570-2545. Star 570, 1-800-570-5715. John, good morning. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, thank you. How are you? Role play with me for a minute. Absolutely. Hi, Mike. My name is John. What's your name? Hi, John. My name is Mike. Mike. And how is your family? You know what, John? My family is doing pretty well, thank you. How's your family doing? My family is just fine. That's something I learned in Cuba. Uh, the Cubans ask you, hi, my name is so-and-so. How is, what is your name and how is your family? And it really touches me. Interesting. Yeah. I'll let you go. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Anything else you did in Cuba you want to talk about? A little bit of rum, maybe? Uh, maybe a Cuban cigar? I used to I used to enjoy the occasional Cohiba or other Cuban cigar. Paul, over to you. Question or comment? Hi, my name is Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I could tell by the sound of your voice, you cranky old so-and-so. Listen. Yes. That, that whole concept of uh, trying to engage people is a really, really bad idea. Why? Because you never know. It might be me. And there's nothing <laughs> I like better than to talk. And you'll get nothing done if you engage me in a conversation. So if you, you know, you make a good point. If you went into the slow lane at the grocery store in Red Deer, Alberta, nobody would ever get into the line afterwards because you'd be there all day. I would. I love to talk to people. I know you do. The, uh, so, you know, be very careful, very careful, especially if you're in the Preston area. Be careful about saying hello, how are you doing today, because I might just tell you. <laughs> Listen, you have a great, uh, great day. Thank you very much, Paul. I will. I hope the very same <laughs> for you. Don't ask Paul how he's doing, because he just might tell you. Speaking of the Preston area, that came up in conversation last night and reminded me, I really do need to get to that area of our community 
and have a cold beverage. I don't even know why I have to try to make that family friendly. And have a beer with Paul. We've been talking about it for quite some time. And the excellent restaurant, the neighborhood pub in Paul's area, the one that we affectionately refer to as the fiddle, is a great spot to go to. We were talking last night about the chicken wings that they make there, which are pretty damn good. I'll just say that. I will just say that. Uh, I want to go back to something we talked about on the show earlier, mainly something that I I ranted about, and I, I still maintain. It's kind of the dirty little secret that's preventing us from getting innovative housing projects even begun in the community. And that is the fact that our regional government is the layer of local government that's responsible for social housing. So when you have an idea like Cambridge had, for example, to build housing over parking lots, it's great. But if that's going to be affordable housing, you got to get the region involved. And really the best that the city can do is engage with the region to see if it's something that's feasible. I think it takes a little bit too much control away from the lower tier local municipality. And it makes me wish more and more that we only had one level of local government. I think we might be able to get more done. It was pointed out to me, though, and I should be clear, that there have been a couple of great projects, including the YWKW uh, affordable housing build on Blockline Road in Kitchener, not to mention a better tent city, which was originally on City of Kitchener land, now over on land that I think is a combination of the school board and the city. But nonetheless, those projects have happened, will continue to happen, and I think it's great. But I I really do, I I firmly believe we got to cut through some of this red tape just within our own community because we fail to do so at our own peril here. Affordable housing in particular. While that's a regional responsibility, all we can do at the lower local level is advocate for it. We, we got to, I feel, start getting out of each other's way. But thank you for pointing out there have been a couple of innovative projects very recently right in the city of Kitchener that we've been able to get finished even despite what I believe to be the madness of our two-tier local system. All right, an update from the City News Center is on the way. In our final hour, we're going to talk to you about the meal mission that Nutrition for Learning is embarking on. A chance for you to see some holiday classics on the big screen and in support of charity. And right after this update from the City News Center, how would you feel if you're a slightly older adult, like maybe my age or older, and a student who needed housing? moved into your place vice versa what if you're the younger and you're looking for that place and an older adult has the room is this a match that could be made in housing heaven we'll talk about it coming up on the mike farwell show this is city news 570 
I really like to pretend that I know absolutely everything that goes on around this community. But the truth is, I mean, honestly, I like to pretend because it's fun pretending. But the truth is, I rely on you on so many occasions to fill in the gaps with my own vision. Tell me what's going on in your little corner of the community. And in this particular case, I'm grateful to Kitchener City Councilor Io Owaduni, who shared with me, uh, unfortunately, not until after it had happened, but that's okay because it doesn't take away from what the forum at Wilfrid Laurier or for Wilfrid Laurier students was all about. And that was an opportunity to match those students with housing options in houses that may currently be inhabited by older adults. Maybe it's an older adult that could use a little bit of support around the house, some additional income from having somebody uh, rent that room or the other space in the house, whatever the situation may be. So I'm glad that Io was able to bring this to my attention because it's an opportunity for us to talk about a housing option of sorts. The housing option in this question is called Spaces Shared. Its co-founder and CEO is Rylan Kinnan, who joins us on the program this afternoon. Rylan, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks so much for having me this afternoon. Thank you very much for making the time to talk about this really innovative idea. How did Spaces Shared get started? Spaces Shared came out of a consultation I did um, for a post-secondary advocacy organization on student mental health. And what I heard through that consultation was just that no matter where a student was in Ontario, they're having significant challenges finding safe and affordable housing. And when I understood the scale of the challenge and some of the affordability limits, I started to think, how do you create affordable housing options for students in a context where housing isn't affordable for anyone? And I had read about models that matched older adults and students in these mutually beneficial housing relationships. And I thought there's probably an opportunity to leverage technology to scale and sustain those models. And that's where the vision was born. How do you use your platform to connect students to these older adults that might have room for that student in their home? So the platform allows an older adult to create a listing and then also describe their ideal housemate and also describe how they like to live in their home. And then students can see that listing and they can see how closely based on their own expectations of their host and their own um, lifestyle choices, um, how well they match to that host. Um, Before anyone can do anything on the platform, we verify the host's identity and we verify their address. We verify the student's identity and we verify that they are in fact enrolled as a student. So safety is really core to what we do at Space to Share. Yeah. No, my apologies. I, I, interrupted there and i'm sorry but i the the safety was one thing that absolutely popped into my head and and i'm glad that's something that's such a high priority what we've heard from our existing hosts which has been so encouraging is a lot of canadians have thought about this they thought about opening their homes they have a spare bedroom they wonder if it can provide some benefit and they also wonder about giving back but the concern has been i don't want to do this by myself what if it doesn't work out and that's the whole point of the space to share program. We are a platform that manages a lot of the matching, but we also have a customer success team that is here to help our matches. Uh, We check in the day that the student moves in. We check in a week thereafter and every month to say, how's it going? And we check in with both the host and the student. 
if we find there's any issues, we make a phone call. We ask, how's it going? How can we help? The host and the guest are never in it by themselves. Uh, we are along for the ride the whole way. So to that end, it's almost like a, I don't know, not really landlord, but owner operator or something. But does Spaces Shared then take a commission from this? So we fund our operations through a $25 a month administration fee. So payments are made through the platform. The student pays the rent to Spaces Shared. We take our $25 a month plus HST admin fee, and we forward the balance onto the host. It's really critical that we manage the payments for two reasons. Uh, first of all, you've probably heard about some of the situations students find themselves in making massive deposits for apartments or units that don't exist. So we don't forward that first month's rent to the host until the student moves in. Um, the second piece is just us knowing very early if for some reason payment hasn't been made. We know following up with a, a guest on a payment issue isn't fun. Uh, we will do that uh, ourselves if we see that there's a payment issue that arises. You started, if I'm not mistaken, Ryland, just earlier this year, correct? We had our first uh, community launch in Barrie with Georgian College in April. Okay. So, and I was curious then, so from April till now, what's uptake been like? The uptake has been uh, quite strong. This is something that takes some time. Uh, One of the things that we are trying to do is encourage Canadians to think about intergenerational living as a really positive win-win experience, both for the host and for the students. But we know in some communities it's a new concept, so it takes some time to get up and running. But we have uh, over a dozen students and hosts living together already. Uh, we are in already five different communities. Uh, by the end of March, I think we'll probably be in 20 different communities. Uh, we're seeing huge student interest. We're seeing significant host uptake. Um, and what we're hearing back from our hosts and our guests is it's a win-win. It addresses the need for safe and affordable housing for students. And for older adults, it's an opportunity to have that connection um, have support uh, in the home or help in the home if they're looking for help with, you know, raking leaves, shoveling snow, taking the garbage out. And of course, the additional income is always a benefit, especially for anyone living on a fixed income, especially in times of high inflation. How do you go about the business? I mean, I don't want you to give away trade secrets or anything, but of, you know, of populating the platform, so to speak. I know that you were in Waterloo a month or so ago to host a forum that Wilfrid Laurier University students attended, for example. Is that how you go about doing it? We work with post-secondary partners um, to uh, decide which communities we're launching in. Those post-secondary partners obviously give us the access to the students when we're ready to start inviting students into match with hosts. And then we work with our post-secondary partners hand-in-hand to drive community awareness. So we really appreciated the partnership with Wilfrid Laurier and the community events that we've been able to hold, the conversations we've been able to have with members of the press, just to make folks aware that this is happening in the community, that this is an option, uh, that it's something to consider. And really what it takes is it takes engagement from our team and from our partners to be able to go out to the community and say, hey, you know what, our students are looking for safe and affordable housing, and maybe they can be a huge benefit to you too. Can we create these win-win relationships? So we work uh, only in the community so far where we have a post-secondary partner, uh, and that will remain the case, I think, for the near future. And and what do those community events or forums look like, Rylan? How do you, you know, how do you go about uh, staging them and, and what kinds of things happen there? So really those community events are focused on hosts. 
that want to understand this model, that want to ask questions, that want to um, see and talk to the Spaces Shared team and know that we're there. Uh, it's very personal to open your home. So some folks want to uh, have their questions answered by us. They want to have an understanding of the process. Um, as you mentioned early, questions around safety and our processes to ensure people's uh, identities and support them through the process are always top of mind. But our goal for those events is for someone who is really seriously considering it to get their questions answered. Uh, if they need assistance signing up, to get them signed up. And um, just to give them a level of comfort to move forward with listing their home if that's something they're interested in doing. Where can people go to learn more, Rylan? I think it's a really interesting concept. So folks can go to www.spacesshared.ca. They can read the content. They can see some of the interviews with some of our hosts and matches. Um, and then they can sign up. The sign-ups all through the platform. But, of course, if there's questions, there's a 1-800 number listed on our contact page. Folks can call our, our customer success team, get their questions answered. Uh, anyone who's interested in this, um, check it out. Reach out to us. Um, we really think there's a lot of folks who would benefit from home sharing. And we just encourage folks, if you're thinking about it but you're not sure, maybe start off with one semester. Maybe start off with a shorter period. Um, students are looking for all kinds of housing options. And um, we think many people who try this are going to find it really meaningful and really valuable. And so we encourage folks to give it a try. Rylan, really appreciate you making time for the show today. Thanks very much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Rylan Kinnan is the co-founder and CEO at Spaces Shared. The website, spacesshared.ca. I apologize, too. That was not the best audio quality, but I determined that we could still... It just sounded like Ryland was underwater. Uh, but we could at least still, I think, pick up what he was saying, the model that he was talking about, the way that these community events and forums happen, which are primarily informational for people who might like to be hosts. And I've given this quite a bit of thought because I had heard the idea sort of in passing some time ago, and then when... Io Oduni, the counselor in Kitchener, made me aware of this event that had happened in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University. It, it piqued my interest even more. And when I first heard about this, I mean, I always think about it in my own context, right? Because it's all about me, after all. But how would I feel about a stranger kind of moving into the home? Like, sometimes I feel like our own teenager is a stranger. And anybody who's got teenagers knows Sometimes you're wondering, who the heck are these alien beings? But that's, I guess, a bit of a sidebar. Uh, but it just, I don't know. Like the, I feel like the older I get, the less inclined I am to share my space. On the other hand, the and I, I mean with anybody outside of my immediate family, of course. I intend on sharing space with my beloved until she's done sharing space with me, you know? But it, it did occur to me that there is that element of the support, even maybe just having that sense of security with somebody else in the home. Obviously, there's the financial aspect to this. And I think, I mean, it certainly sounds to me like win-win on both sides of that ledger, right? The older adult can generate a little bit of additional revenue. The younger student can find stable, secure housing at what I would assume to be a reasonable slash affordable rate. 
And as I'm listening to Ryland today, what pops into my mind is the billet family system that is in use across the Ontario Hockey League. Just think about that. You get 18, 20 plus kids every year coming to a community, brand new to that community. This is happening in 20 communities across, well, 17 across the province, three in the States, but there are 20 teams in the league. And every player on every one of those teams needs a billet family to live with. I mean, it's one of the unsung successes, I think, of the junior hockey model in this country. Why couldn't it work for post-secondary students? Why couldn't it be another housing option or alternative here? I think it's pretty interesting. Spacesshared.ca is the website if you'd like to learn more. But I'm just curious, I mean, how much like me you are or maybe how much you differ. Like I said, initially the thought of, I don't know, do I want to welcome a stranger into the house as I get older and more established and certainly more set in my ways? I think I'm hard enough on my family. Do I want somebody else disrupting my personal space? But I, I think there are some benefits here that I might be overlooking if I stay in that stubborn set of ways. What do you think of the idea? Would you consider? Is this something that sounds appealing to you? If you're a student, is it the kind of housing you would appreciate? If you're the older adult, do you see benefit in this? And would you be willing to open up your home? 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-570. 5715. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. No matter where a student was in Ontario, they're having significant challenges finding safe and affordable housing. And when I understood the scale of the challenge and some of the affordability limits, I started to think, how do you create affordable housing options for students in a context where housing isn't affordable for anyone? And I thought, there's probably an opportunity to leverage technology to scale and sustain those models. And that's where the vision was born. Ryland Kinnan is the co-founder and CEO at Spaces Shared. It's a platform that connects students in need of housing with older adults who might have the space for those students to take up. It's an interesting idea. Safety seems to be of paramount concern. And I don't know, I think this might be part of the overall mix. What say you? 519-570-2545. Star 570 and 1-800-570-5715. Grant, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. Well, when me and my brother had our house, we didn't have a student, but he... I don't know how he connected with this person to... All right, to have... pay. He, he needed a place to stay. All right, I was fine. We charged him 250 to... And we thought that that was a good deal. And then my brother, several months down the road, he said, have you been going through my wallet? No. And and then he, with the amount of time that he was with us, he took 2000 from us. Oh, boy. So you did not have a good experience at all. And we gave him a second chance. And I, I knew that he was, I knew my brother was at work and he was in my bedroom and he took money and he was taking food. And he, was, he would say, well, that's for the cat. Yeah, well, right on. 
But and you have to kind of be aware of students. They want to party to the wee hours of the night. Okay. Well. Okay. Grant, listen. I don't want. I'm. I'm not here to whiz all. Yes. Some young people like to. I bet you, Grant. I'll bet you. When you were younger, you had the occasional party too. I'm not trying to go down that path, and I'm really sorry that you did not have a good experience. But remember, this was your brother finding somebody, I guess, in need of a place and thought you could work it out between the two of you. This is where a place like Spaces Shared plays that intermediary for you, right? Right down to collecting the money on your behalf. Because, you know, if the money's late, that's not a conversation you want to have to have, right? So hopefully that mitigates some of those problems. Again, sorry to hear that it worked out poorly for you when it was a much more random situation. Spaces Shared is taking the randomness out of it and looking for those matches between older folks willing to host and students looking for a place. Steve, good afternoon. Oh, without seeing all the details, I would be extremely wary of that for the same reason um, you're wary of renting out a home. If the people decide that they don't want to pay or the people decide that they're not going to adhere to the rules anymore, I can tell you, they get dug in like ticks. And with the system, the way it's set up, they hold all the cards, they have all the power. And if it's an uncomfortable setting, you know, whether there's an intermediary or not, the person doesn't want to leave. They're not going anywhere. So I would uh, I would want to read the fine print on that, and I would want to see some kind of history on how those kind of problems are resolved. Otherwise, you're going to have somebody living in your home who you have no respect for, who isn't paying rent, who is a problem, and there's nothing you can do. Yeah, you know, I get where you're coming from, Steve, and I've heard these stories before from folks who are land persons, right? So you're absolutely right. Let's see what the fine print says within the model and also understand how things have been remedied in the past because the famous story I keep remembering is one that I read earlier this year about a woman in, I want to say Niagara Falls, but who had rented out her home and, and, and these folks would not leave and she even offered the money to leave and they still wouldn't leave and, and what it turned out that these this family was doing was essentially going from place to place to place and just not paying. And for years they had been doing this, never paid a nickel in any of the rents. And and it, the, the system is structured such that as the property owner slash land person, you have very little recourse. And so just imagine, I mean, quite the scam if you can pull it off for years, not paying a nickel in any sort of rent. I, I can just hope that they use that time to save that money to get into the housing market themselves. But, oh my goodness, what a nightmare it turned out to be. So I understand where you're coming from. Hopefully, spaces shared, acting as an intermediary in all of this, can help mitigate some of those problems. A quick update from the City News Centre. And then, what is the meal mission that Nutrition for Learning has embarked on? And what holiday movie can you see in support of charity? Uh, That conversation coming up, those conversations, plural, on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570.
As we head into the holiday season, we may forget momentarily about those young folks who attend our schools. They're going to get a break too, right? But we want to keep them top of mind because they get support while they're in school through various organizations, one of which we're about to hear from. And that support can be in the way of food. Food insecurity can be addressed. At least some of those gaps can be filled while the kids are in school. Let's not forget about them as the holidays roll around. Aaron Morahan is the CEO of Nutrition for Learning and joins us to talk about Nutrition for Learning's new Meal Mission campaign. Aaron, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me again, Mike. It is always a pleasure. Love the work that you and the team do at Nutrition for Learning. And and you have made it clear, Aaron, that what we are in right now is an emergency. And you're not afraid of using that language around it. It's true. And I think, you know, luckily, not that this is the place we want to be in, but luckily, a lot of folks uh, at the leadership level across the country in the food sector are really finally using this language because that is what we've been seeing at the ground level for the last year plus uh, as we wind down the pandemic, for sure. So what is the Meal Mission campaign all about? Well, you know, Mike, I think we really believe that there is no reason that any young people in Waterloo Region should be hungry during the school day. And I know there's so many different schools of thought around who should be addressing youth food insecurity and who should be funding it and all of those things. And there's a huge misconception that student nutrition is fully funded by the government. It's not. Um, And we always say it doesn't matter, right? At this moment in time, while we look at this growing problem and try and find solutions together both you know at the at the government level and and beyond while we're sitting around wondering who should be uh you know covering these issues kids are going hungry and it's elevating it's climbing every single day and so the meal mission is simply about saying you know we here in waterloo region have the resources to make sure that there is not a single young person k-12 to who comes to school and is too hungry to participate. What do you know, what can you tell us, Erin, about the depth of that need across our school system and and the impact it has on children when they are not getting the necessary food they need every day? Well, we know how we feel, right, when we come to work and, and we skip breakfast or we forgot to pack a lunch or we haven't, you know, scheduled any lunch breaks in our calendar. You can't function, right? And you can imagine if this is an ongoing issue at home and maybe kiddos aren't coming home to a meal or they're not getting that breakfast on a very regular basis, being able to access the nutritious food that they need during the school day becomes a real lifeline. So we know that when there's food at school, kids who could be getting sidelined from everything from learning to play to sports to creativity when there's food they get to participate so it's really easy to understand why it's so incredibly important to a young person's trajectory that they just have the food that they need to be part of things and to grow how can we support you Erin, and the team at nutrition for learning in this meal mission Well, this is the easy part, right? I think at the end of the day, we're asking folks to give what they can because even $5 is going to provide a couple of meals. We can do a meal right now with three food groups. 
of a fresh produce, protein, and whole grain for about $1.30. So that helps folks really understand, uh, you know, the, the impact that you can make. There's really no amount that's too small. And, uh, and it's the season to be generous, right? We know that after the, the school break uh, over the holidays, kids come back more hungry than ever. And certainly financial times are always extremely elevated for folks um, in January after the holidays. So we're asking everyone to be generous. The thing is that, uh, you know, we, we know that we'll spend this year more than we did last year. Our food spend last year at Nutrition for Learning was about $1.5 million. And that always surprises people that we have that many hungry kids here in our community. But that, that is the, that's where we're at. So, you know, we can meet that need. We can meet that need um, while we're, you know, advocating for changes at the government level and working with, with uh, you know, corporate partners, et cetera. Um, all of us in the community can open up our wallets and give the little bit that we can. How are you able to do that, you know, fresh produce, protein, whole grain for about a buck thirty? You must have support from partners, et cetera, to be able to to buy it. Was it is it bulk or to, you know, get those sorts of rates, if you will? It's such a good question. You know, so many folks assume that we operate similarly to a food bank and that we provide um, food donations to schools, and we don't. We think it's really important that young people have uh, fresh food that it's in alignment with those uh, nutrition guidelines that we want them to access, right? We want them to have the full balance of what they need to have functioning brains and bodies. And yes, you're right. We're very, very lucky to have amazing local partners um, that help us procure food that is uh, fresh and accessible and easy for kids to hold and unwrap and all of those things. Um, So we have a really special team of folks that helps us make that happen. Do you worry what happens over the next couple of weeks, Erin, when these kids are not in school and you miss that opportunity to connect them with this food? I worry like crazy. I lose sleep over it every school break. That includes March break and and uh, the summer break. And, you know, luckily our partners at uh, certainly the Waterloo Food Bank, Cambridge Food Bank, and Food for Kids, uh, along with some other folks, there's other, you know, teen uh, programs out there that are accessible through all of our good friends at House of Friendship and so forth. There's lots of community resources, but we know it's not enough. Um, so I think what's so important, and I'm glad you bring it up, is that, you know, folks know that we are all working together as a team, all of us in food security uh, here in the region to help make um, this community safer for, for young people as they grow. I love the work that you do. I know it is a uh, a team effort across the board, and uh, I hope that we can talk about meal mission accomplished uh, in the weeks and months ahead because the kids absolutely need our support. I agree, Mike, and I think the other thing, too, is, you know, this is a great time of year to make a tribute gift, um, not only in honor of um, your child's teacher, but also the other amazing coordinators at the school level who are preparing all of this food for these kids. So if you're wondering, wondering how to address that teacher gift, this is always the perfect thing. That's a great idea. I love that. Who needs another coffee mug anyway? Make it a, right. Right, a tribute <laughs> gift. Erin, <laughs> thank you very much for making the time today. Keep up the good work and have a very happy holiday. You too. Thank you, Mike. Erin Morahan is the CEO at Nutrition for Learning Waterloo Region. They have a meal mission campaign underway, ensuring that absolutely no student goes without food during the school day this 
year, and they need our support in order to continue meeting that rising need. Just think, $1.5 million last year. That just speaks to the depth of the need in the community, how much food insecurity is out there. You can visit nutritionforlearning.ca to learn more and to also participate in this campaign. What a great idea. The teacher gift, make it a tribute gift through Nutrition for Learning and help ensure that those gaps are closed. Okay, I wanted to make sure we had an opportunity uh, to talk about another charitable initiative, and I'm pretty excited about this one because it's the annual Harris Law Movie Night, which supports a number of charities locally, including, it just so happens, one that is very near and dear to my heart. But I also love movies, so you can see some holiday movies on the big screen and you can help out in the community as well. Alicia Stewart is a partner at Harris Law and joins us to talk about it. Alicia, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me today. It is an absolute pleasure. I, this is so exciting, and I love the whole idea behind it, because who doesn't love going to the movies and maybe getting a break from you know the, the hectic pace of the holidays and just sitting back, enjoying a holiday movie, and at the same time, supporting charities like you're doing through this. How did it all get started, Alicia? Where did this all begin? Uh, It all started a few years ago. Gord Harris, the owner of the firm, um, wanted to give back to the community, wanted to give back to some of these great charities that uh, work closely in the community. And so um, he thought exactly what you said, that uh, everybody sort of needs a break around this time and needs to kick back and and wind a little bit. And and also uh, we're a a bunch of movie buffs here, so we thought (laughs) what a what a great way to do that. Uh, we rent out the Apollo Cinema in uh, downtown Kitchener, and uh, the admission's free as long as you make a donation to either the Food Bank or the Brain Injury Association, uh, and this year Farewell for Hire um, as well, or bring an unwrapped toy or a food donation, and uh, then come enjoy the movie on us, and uh Get in the holiday spirit that way. Absolutely. So the next round of movies, I know this got this kicked off last week, but tomorrow night uh, we've got a double bill. At 7 o'clock, it's The Grinch, and at 9, it's Office Party, and then this continues into the weekend as well. That's right. So tomorrow night, the two movies, 7 p.m. and 9 p.m., and then on Saturday, the 23rd, at 1.30, there's another showing of The Grinch. How does... How does the staff, how does the team at Harris Law feel about this? I mean, I've seen some photos from years past with, you know, going through the food that's been collected for the food bank and, you know, sometimes these toys, these new unwrapped toys that get donated. I mean, there must be, it must contribute to the holiday spirit at the office too. It does, for sure. We all really enjoy it, so I would keep doing it each year. Um, And it it gives, you know, all of our staff and us as well, that feeling of, of, you know, physically doing the giving back when we're putting it all together and we're dropping everything off. So for sure. And it also nice to take our mind off of uh, the work and off of the stress of the holiday season by focusing on giving back to the community. Is it difficult to choose the charitable partners? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Um, You know, the food bank, of course, this year in particular and in the last couple of years um, has definitely 
needed all the support they can get. So that seems like an obvious pick. Um, the Brain Injury Association of Waterloo Wellington is an association that by the nature of what we do as personal injury lawyers, um, we tend to be involved with them. So um, also an easy pick. And then, of course, Farwell for Hire, easy pick for us. <laughs> <laughs> Gord and your entire team have always been very generous uh, to me personally through the charity, to our radio station and support of our Kitchener Rangers broadcasts. I, I just love this. Where, where can we learn more, Alicia, about this movie night and, and how we can take part? Uh, we've got social media posts on Harris Law's Facebook and Instagram pages. Um, we've tried to post uh, movie posters or sort of posters for the night throughout uh, the community. We've got some all around our building here at 50 Queen Street and at the Apollo as well. Um, but you can check it out on uh, the social media sites. That's probably the best way to do it. I got to say, Gord looks really good in that green suit with the Santa hat. Now, is that <laughs> is that legit? Like, Or is that Photoshop? Come on, tell the truth. Uh, it's Photoshop. Ah, darn it's Photoshop. it. <laughs> but you know, wouldn't take a lot to recreate that moment. I'm sure that Gord would be would be down for. That. We're gonna have to, you know, what? We'll get him up into that press box at a hockey game sometime in a green suit with a Santa hat and get an actual picture like that. It wouldn't take much. He'd be down. I'm sure. I'm sure he would. Listen, Alicia, thank you for doing this again. Selfishly, thank you for supporting Farwell for Hire. But it makes so much sense with the Brain Injury Association and the food bank as well. Uh, I know how hard you all work on this. So thank you on behalf of the community. And we're. I hope lots of people come out. I'm going to encourage everybody to join us at those movies tomorrow night. That's when my family is going to be there. And then on Saturday as well. So thank you for this. Thank you very much, Mike. Enjoy the rest of your day and happy holidays. Happy holidays. Thanks very much. Alicia Stewart joining us, a partner at Harris Law. Look, it's it's really easy. You want to come to the movies tomorrow night? Because all you got to do is bring 10 bucks per person as a donation to your choice of charity, the Brain Injury Association, or, you know, Farwell for Hire, or bring a new unwrapped toy to be donated, or... A, f- a donation to the Food Bank of Waterloo Region. Like, it doesn't get any easier than that. And you get to enjoy a movie. Tomorrow night at 7, it's going to be The Grinch. Tomorrow night at 9, it's going to be Office Party. Curiously, I uh, I received a message earlier this week. Uh, I think it was from Marianne who said she had seen or something about Office Party and how awful it was, which now makes me want to see it even more. Because if it's really that bad, it must be good, right? Anyway, tomorrow night, it's a double bill. At 7 o'clock, it's The Grinch. At 9 o'clock, it's Office Party. And then on Saturday, which is the 23rd, there's a nice little matinee of The Grinch. Chance to entertain the kids a little bit. Give yourself a break. Just so you know, the Apollo serves beer. So come to the Apollo on Ontario Street in downtown Kitchener and join us for the Gord Harris and the team at Harris Law annual holiday movie night. It's in support of the Brain Injury Association of Waterloo Wellington, the Food Bank of Waterloo Region, and yes, Farwell for Hire. It's just $10 per person if you want to use cash, or you can bring that new unwrapped toy or that food donation for the food bank. Come on out, see a movie with us. We'll have a good time, and we'll help out those charities along the way. Okay, in... Keeping with that, I suspect, with the theme of holiday movies, I suspect you know 
from which holiday movie this comes, right? Oh, I need my computer turned on. Devon Robertson has my computer on. No, he doesn't. What's going? Oh, wait a minute. Devon, Devon, sorry, we talked about names yesterday. That was completely my fault. I was I was playing something before I wanted to make sure it didn't go on. There was an autoplay on my computer, so I it was I turned my speaker off. That's a Farwell problem, not a Devon problem. Uh, I suspect you know, I set it up so well, too. I bet you know which holiday movie this comes from, right? Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Attaboy, Clarence. You know, right? Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. You know what movie that's from, right? That is the 10th most popular movie for us to watch again and again every holiday season. What other nine could possibly be on the list? We'll get to those and your parting shots coming up. And if you want to get, like, you know the movie, right? You're going to tell me what movie it was? This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. I would like to remind you again, please do join us tomorrow night at the Apollo Cinema in downtown Kitchener, the annual Harris Law Holiday Movie Night. We're going to watch The Grinch at 7, Office Party at 9. You can watch The Grinch again on Saturday. A matinee, take the kids, 1.30. And it's all in support of the Brain Injury Association of Waterloo-Wellington, Food Bank of Waterloo Region, and yes, even Farwell for Hire. In keeping with the theme of movies, I shared just before the break this with you. That's right. That's right. And that, of course, from It's a Wonderful Life, an absolute holiday classic, the 10th most popular for us to watch again every holiday season. What other nine could possibly be ahead of it? Yes, and he's real. Miracle on 34th Street. I haven't watched that one in a while. Might be time to revisit it. The eighth most popular movie to watch again every holiday season. Santa? Merry Christmas! And what is your name? Uh, uh, That's all right. I have a special present for you anyway. There you go, Sonny. <laughs> that is the old nightmare before Christmas. Uh, not my cup of tea. Never watched it. Tim Burton is weird. End of story. I'll just leave it right there. Uh, this is my number one, actually. I haven't missed this since I don't know when. And I always insist on watching this version of it. Well, then, I've just got to swallow this and I'd be tortured for the rest of my life by a legion of hobgoblins. All of my own creation. It's all humbug, I tell you. It's all humbug, I tell you. Alistair Sim, the 1951 black and white version of A Christmas Carol, the seventh most popular movie for us to watch again and again. It's my number one. 
I don't know how this next one got on the list. I can't believe it comes in ahead of A Christmas Carol or It's a Wonderful Life, but... I'm just going to leave that one right there because it's not even a holiday movie. Number Why five. Why don't you just say it? Why don't you just say it? I'm the worst toy maker in the world. I'm a cotton-headed ninny muggins. Yes, you are a cotton-headed ninny muggins. Elf, Will Ferrell, already watched that one this year. Love it. The fourth most popular to watch again every holiday season. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. That though not to be mistaken with Home Alone, that's Lost in New York. See if you can spot this one. Is that an important message to you, Bill? Not really, Mike. Christmas is a time for people with someone they love in their lives. And that's not you? That's not me, Michael. How do you think the new record compares to your old classic stuff? Oh, come on, Mikey. You know as well as I do, the record's crap. <laughs> But wouldn't it be great if number one this Christmas wasn't some smug teenager, but an old ex-heroin addict searching for a comeback at any price? So if you believe in Father Christmas, children, like your Uncle Billy does, buy my festering turd of a record. (laughs) My festering turd of a record. That's from Love Actually, the third most popular to rewatch. I had to dig deep for that one. It's called The Snowman. There's no words in it. I didn't love the looks of it as I looked it up, but that's the second most popular. And, of course, number one. That's it. I forgot to close the garage. That's it. No, that's not it. What else could we be forgetting? Kevin! The original Home Alone. Most popular movie to rewatch every holiday season. Hey, we got to go. I'm out of time. It goes too fast. Devon Robertson is the guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Now you know with Rob Snow coming up on City News 570.